Welcome to episode 25 of the Narrative Wargamer podcast, a non-competitive 40k podcast with a focus on fun and narrative gameplay, as well as hobby news and our latest hobby projects. I am Tony Rhodes, and tonight I am joined by Chris Wildman. What up? And Dan Wellington. Hello. As always, before we get started, you can find us at Narrative Wargamer on Facebook, or you can follow us on Twitter at Narrative40k and on Instagram at Narrative Wargamer. You can also contact us via email at narrativewargamer at gmail.com if you have any questions or if you would like to join us on a future episode. If you want to support the show and help us grow, you can do so by joining our Patreon from only $2 a month. The support from our patrons helps towards the cost of producing the show and towards awesome new content for you guys in the future. Finally, if you want to support the show for free, you can do by visiting the awesome folks over at Element Games for all your hobby supplies and gaming miniatures. Just use our affiliate link below to visit their web store, and that way any purchases you make will directly help support the podcast. Links for everything are in the description below, so please check them out and get involved with the growing community. And it has indeed been growing recently. We've actually hit almost a few different milestones all at once with um, this yeah. episode. Um, so it's funny that um, it's jumping forwards a little bit to our announcements, but we've got the Facebook group nearly up to 100 members now. I think at this moment in time, it's 99 members. So if you're listening, next person to join, we are 100 Facebook group member. Um, just had... Um, our latest little kickback from Element Games because we're getting an increase now in our number of um, click-throughs and sales from that affiliate link, which is great to see. Like it's lovely to see people, you know, buying all their new um, supplies and releases. Because it's funny, I have noticed there's more sales on Saturdays and on new release days. Uh, we get more links through the affiliate link, so I can see that there are people definitely picking up their yep. um, books of rust and. Um, plague purge packs and stuff through Elven Games, which is amazing. Um, this itself is episode 25 of the podcast, which, although a small milestone, is that halfway to 50, you know, halfway again to 100. <laughs> so it's a nice round number. It is. Um, and one of the sort of the big milestone that we've hit in the last two weeks really, is the podcast has actually passed 10,000 lifetime downloads. But, uh... To dare indeed. Even Podbean, like, sent me an email about it saying, congratulations. Hey. Here's a little sticker you can put on your website. Nice. <laughs> Give sticker. Yes. So it, was, um, so it was great to see some sort of, like, official validation that even uh, a proper Podbean, sorry, a proper podcasting platform like Podbean considers 10k to be like a significant milestone worth celebrating. Yeah, absolutely. So, thank you everyone for listening. <laughs> it's been great, and I still see the numbers, you know, gradually going up and up every month. So, the like you guys out there, you must be, you know, telling friends about the show. Um, just, you know, helping give us likes and reviews and all the rest of it. Subscribe to us on your various podcast um, apps that your platforms of choice because it really is starting to feed into those algorithms now and people are finding the show. 
um, and it's it's great to see. Yeah. Top notch stuff. So yeah, and it's only it's only taken twenty five podcast episodes, nearly two years, and Games Workshop has finally now given us another actual campaign supplement to work with for our narrative <laughs> yeah. show. Was Vigilus the debut one? Um, it, funnily enough, it wasn't, but the Vigilus series of books were what inspired me to create the show. Yeah. So it was because it was oh. the the stuff like the battle zones and the campaign system and everything else in there um, that I'd re- I say I'd re- relatively recently got into listening to podcasts and I was looking forward to people reviewing it and no one ever did. All that ever got talked about was whichever the most broken um, formation was. <laughs> yep. Um, special detachments, that's what I remember. Yeah, special detachments. Yeah, basically, like, uh, I mean, as an Orc player, all I basically heard mentioned was, take the really good shock attack gun. That was about it. And yet there were like three that's or four all that was different... in that book. One gun. Exactly, that's the impression you'd get from listening to a show. Yeah. But there was so much more cool stuff in there. Um, so yeah, the premise of the show was very much born out from the fact that I felt Vigilus was very underrepresented by content creators, and uh, and now here we are, two years later, and I am myself producing a show, and we are now going to be talking about the Book of Rust, and Act 1 in the latest narrative campaign system um, supplement for a new edition of the game. So, full circle almost in a way. Um, but yeah, so honestly, the um, the show's been going from strength to strength, and I just want to say a big thank you to all our listeners, and it's just going to continue to grow. I'm excited to see where it goes. Absolutely. And Indeed. as part of that, um, and my obligations to our very wonderful patrons out there. Um, we have a brand new patron to the show and they will get a shout out as do all the patrons because I will not make any special examples of anyone. Everyone will get the same treatment they deserve. So thank you, brand new patron, Mr. Dan Wellington. (laughs) Uh, Who let that idiot sign up? So thank you, Dan. Thank you very much for becoming one of our official Patreon supporters. And That's all right. I thought it was probably please, about time. Well, yes. Um, I mean, it's funny how you couldn't have picked a better time because not only are you here on the next episode of the show to hear your own shout-out and thank you for, <laughs> for signing <laughs> up, but in addition to that, we've now got our very first Patreon exclusive bonus episode now available for our patrons to go listen to. So this is a bit of news for everyone listening, but as of uh, today, uh, I've managed to get uploaded to our patron the first of our brand new bonus series, Casual Conversations, where basically myself and any of the podcast team happen to jump in with me on that episode. We just sit down and talk hobby. Just like we don't have a script as such or even a topic in mind we just get together like any of us you know 40k fans will do we just 
chat away and just have a great time filling an hour or so with hobby chat. That sounds like a fun little bonus. Uh, who it, it who is. is on this one then? Well, <laughs> you'll be able to find out, Dan, because now that you're a patron, you can go listen and you'll get the privilege of listening to a conversation that, <laughs> that was recorded between myself, Dave Parker, and a Mr. Dan Wellington. Oh, he gets everywhere, doesn't he? <laughs> He does. Guys, this, um, this this very subtle kind of nudging and and coercion is going to encourage me to subtly become a Patreon myself. Excellent. See, it's so already I don't miss out on this exclusive and wicked content. <laughs> if if yeah. you were uh, if you became a patron right now, would you get a shout out on this episode or the next one? Oh, shall we shall we try? <laughs> I, I think uh, I was... we, we won't stress Tony out anymore than uh, than than you. <laughs> I think as written in the terms, it would be in the next episode. Right. At the point at which he signed up. <laughs> we'll see what the legal team say about this. <laughs> that sounds like a great idea for exclusive content. I think it's a really, really nice nudge for people to sign up to the Patreon. And like I say, it helps the show, keeps you doing what you need to do and gets the content out there and helps us enjoy it and keep the quality as good as it is, if not better. Well, yeah, exactly. And I just, I, I wanted to get around to actually producing something as like, a thank you for to our patrons, something that is just for them that they can enjoy, um, and is more than just them, you know, throwing a donation our way as a thank you. Well, we can throw something back as a thank you now. So yes, lots of stuff getting thrown around. I like it. And <laughs> since we've been getting so much of like just a content hose of stuff from Games Workshop, even in terms of narrative play, there's been less opportunity to just sit and chat about the hobby as a whole on the show so yeah. i figured it would be a great format to just have as a not so much a behind the scenes sort of series but more a get to know us kind of series um, yeah it's like a relaxed kind of kind of series yeah it is literally just casual conversations we just it's us as a basically as a play group like as a, a group of hobbyists just discussing all the latest things that are taking our eye or interest in 40k and beyond so and uh when you say the latest things given that uh dave was on quite a lot of talking about very old things i think well for maybe the latest things he's got round to yeah such as his you know um, chaos androids from first edition yeah <laughs> he's finally got around oh, to doing as it were dave i remember when barker <laughs> very much so so yeah um so uh, to all our patrons that are already out there listening, you can go check that out now over on you know, um, patreon.com forward slash narrative wargamer and um, you can listen to the first casual conversations episode right there and then. And for anyone else who would like to listen to us talk about all things, well, anything really, I believe we were talking about Beast Staggers, Apocalypse, Kukari Munda was something we invented at one point. Yes, yes, that was episode. mentioned. Like just a bunch of things, really. If you want to go check that out, then uh, you can do by just signing up to the patron, and you can help support the show, and you get something back as well. Even more hobby goodness for you guys to enjoy. Hooray! Smash it. So to that end, there will be absolutely no hobby chat this episode. (laughs) (laughs) No hobby chat. No more hobby Tyranny, chat for you. They've, they've taken the content away from us. Oh, no. <laughs> no, it's it's funny how it just falls in line 
um, with the fact that we've got a huge book to go through and a whole load of content to cover in this show that I didn't want to split it up into two episodes. So at this point, I don't quite know how long this recording is going to end up being. Um, it could be quite a big show, and we are going to be talking exclusively about the various different um, narrative play content contained within Warzone Charadon Act 1, The Book of Rust. So no Pin Station Garrison, no Community Edge highlights this week, but they will obviously... That's fine, I've not painted anything anyway. <laughs> <laughs> I don't believe that for a second. <laughs> Lies. Um, so yeah, as a just a little forward then, um, we're going to break the show up into different segments where we're going to be talking about all the different aspects of the book Rust. Um, we will be touching a little bit on some of the like army list stuff, but we're mostly going to be looking at the new um, Armies of Renown system, not going to be doing a deep dive into any of the Codex supplements. So if you want to go learn more about basically the new like warlord traits, stratagems, and such that are available to um, Forge World, Metallica, the Cult of Strife, and House Raven, then I'm sure there are plenty of other uh, podcasts and shows out there that have already covered it in quite uh, a lot more detail than we are going to do, because we're basically, we're not. We're going to touch very briefly yeah. on one little aspect of Metallica and Raven, but it's going to be five minutes. <laughs> And I don't know when that'll be, so feel free to dig through our two-hour plus show if you want to find that nugget. But um, Otherwise, we're going to be talking about things such as the Abolis Invasion Campaign, the Legendary Missions, the Crusade Rules, um, Viral and Gifts for Death Guard, and the Armies of Renown. So all this brand new sort of crusade and otherwise narrative content that's in this book, because there is a lot of it, and it is all excellent. Yes, I agree. So to that end, guys, we'll be back in just a second with the first part of our coverage on Warzone Charidon Act 1, The Book of Rust. And stay tuned because it is going to be a crunchy episode. We're going to be getting deep into a lot of rules here, but all of them are really cool and we didn't want to skip any of them. So uh, hang tight, guys. It's going to be a good one. And we're back, guys. So we're going to be jumping into our first part of the coverage for Warzone Charidon, Book of Rust. Um, and we're going to start with the Obolis invasion campaign. Now, did I say that correctly, guys, or not? Controversial, I'm going to say. I'm going to say controversial. I, uh, I'm an Obolos man myself. Obolis. <laughs> Obolis. I, I think Obolis. The Obelisk Invasion Campaign. Fair enough. So, this is basically the core framework for the narrative campaign system as presented in this publication. Um, and honestly, once I sort of went through it, it's basically the same core framework as the Argavon, um, like, free phase campaign system. Now, I would say that this is actually a good thing. Um, it's not a, it's not just a rework because it, it doesn't use things like the zero tech system and so on that was the feature of Agamon. It's just that it uses the the same sort of like Grand Alliances, Campaign Master, 
three phases to the campaign system where you score war zone points um, and um, strategic value points in order to determine which alliance ends up winning the campaign. Now, I did think it was a really strong system that was introduced in um, the Argamon supplements in like the flashpoints of articles in White Dwarf. So I think it's really good that they've used it here. And if anything, it's really helpful that this is in one publication. So you don't have to go get three different articles from White Dwarf to be able to play this style of narrative campaign. It's yeah, it's 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 really nice because it summarizes the core of it in like I what, like ten ten ish pages. Um if that and it lends itself yeah, exactly. It lends itself really nicely to other publications and <clears throat> other kind of campaign resources that you've got, which you can use to either flesh it out or add to, um, or kind of wind it all into a large campaign kind of narrative. Yeah, so um if you'd like to hear a more sort of deep dive on the system, um, if you go listen to our Flashpoint Argamon episode, um, then we delve into that in a lot more detail there. But suffice to say, um, the summary here is that um, it talks about using a campaign master, so someone whose responsibility it is to basically sort of organise the campaign weeks and um, sort out things like the alliances and not necessarily the matchups as such, but just basically run the campaign. And they, they do have a few sort of um, extra powers of influence as a result of that and the extra things presented in this particular campaign. But essentially, it suggests running um, the campaign in three phases, about maybe two weeks each, something like that. So you've got sort of six to eight weeks for a campaign length. And each phase of the campaign, um, players play games on any scale or sort of system, really. They want Crusade, match play, open play, whatever. And um, they're awarded war zone points for winning games and participating in games. These points are scaled depending on how big a game you're playing. And those um, war zone points that you earn contribute towards your alliance's total war zone points for that phase. Now, sort of summarised as the three alliances being the defenders, the invaders, and the raiders, which in the nature of the narrative of Warzone Charadon, that's the imperial forces as defenders, chaos forces as the invaders, and basically miscellaneous all other factions as the raiders, sort of like... Everybody back. else. Yeah. Um, I mean, it does give some examples where, in order for, like, balancing player count between the alliances, you don't have to be so strict in that. So, for example, you could have a chaos force that's trying to follow its own agendas, so they might not be part of the invaders, they might be part of the raiders. You might equally have a mechanicum force that has actually been tempted to join the Dark Mechanicum or, or similar, and they might be fighting as part of the invaders rather than the Imperial Defenders. So it's up to the campaign manager to sort of work out what the best balance for your number of players is going to be. Yeah, I think that's really nice as well because it, it 
it obviously Caradon has its own narrative with the big factions of your Metallica and your Typhus and Co and everybody else. But then having the Invader, Defender, and then Raider kind of grand faction quotation marks in there, it really stops it so people feel excluded so that they can't be part of the narrative. And it ties in really, really nicely and lets the players and the uh, campaign master, whoever that may be, kind of have a say in how they want to play their games with what armies. Yeah, and I think it helps build towards that collective story of the alliances battling for supremacy in this campaign um, without getting too hung up on the individual players' forces. Exactly. Yeah, it's always good when you've got options for who can play what. I mean, as we all know, the uh, the orcs aren't in this aren't necessarily in this book, but they they're a thing. Uh, so, I mean, I could I could imagine you could have them. They would traditionally be lumped in the raider part, right? But I mean, depending on which part of the uh, uh, Caradon or Charadon sector you go to, then uh, there, there's a there's an arch arsonist around somewhere, isn't there? Yeah, the um, the arch arsonist of Charadon is one of the more famous like orc warlords, pretty much in the Imperium mm-hmm. um, outside of Gazgul. Yep. Um, and I fully anticipate we're going to be seeing orcs featuring in presumably Act Two of Warzone Charadon whenever it comes yeah. around. Yeah, they are. So. I've read the um, like half of the book is all narrative and lore and what's going on in the center itself, and the orcs do appear, and they are literally the wasp of the picnic. So you've got Typhus <laughs> trying to do what he wants to do, and the Metallica trying to defend themselves. And every now and again, their flotillas and their fleets are getting peppered by orc attacks and orc raiders and orc looters. <laughs> and it's just that that tech priest sat on the bridge of a ship like, oh, not this, not today. <laughs> but again, that that lends itself and inspires you to have that story and to kind of fit whatever army you play into that narrative and think, cool. So they're looking at these Admech and the Death Guard fight and what are they going to do and what do they want to gain from it? And again, yeah. it forces you to tell that story and uh, yeah, really make it part of your games. I mean, if, yeah. your, if your group dynamic suggests it, then I could totally see a situation when the orcs and the Imperium are both defenders, uh, and yeah. they're sort of like, "Well, you know, we're we're both here already. We're just going to fight the Chaos Invaders, and then we'll deal with each other." Yeah, it's an interesting way of looking at it, since you know the Orc Empire of Charadon is one of the largest Orc empires, just because it doesn't happen to be covering the patch of space where Fortress Metallica is, doesn't mean they are not still a large home turf. Like faction in yep. that region of space. Yeah, so there, there's a lot of flexibility there, isn't there? <laughs> there is. Um, and then the system itself is very flexible in how it actually works in order to determine the campaign victor at the end of the three phases. Um, where, like in the Argamon system, at the end of every phase, whichever Grand Alliance has the highest total war zone points from its individual game wins earns a strategic point for that phase. Um, phase 1 being worth 1, Phase 2 being worth 2, and Phase 3 being worth 3 strategic points. So that no matter what combinations of the possible alliances win each phase, it's still all to play for by Phase 3. Which is nice. Everybody wants that culmination at the end of a campaign, or a game, or, a, or any kind of narrative scenario. Yeah, it's really good because it basically it writes out the chance that if one faction wins phase one and two, there's no point playing phase three because they can't be beaten. Mm. Even if they win both phases one and two, 
either of the other two factions, if they win phase three, they'll tie the result at the end of the campaign, which then means you have to play a, a, a big grand final deciding match between some of the designated players, or possibly yeah. an apocalypse game. Any excuse. Any excuse for apocalypse. Well, I mean, it's it's a, a bit of a 40k staple, isn't it, to have a, a long grinding stalemate that uh, where no one wins. So uh, that would be totally in keeping for there to be a draw. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's how the campaign system sort of matches up with the one we've seen in the Argabon, um flashpoints. But then there are a couple of new um, amendments that can be run by the campaign manager. Um, and in this case, these are the campaign master's edicts. So this is new to the Book of Rust and um, specifically the um, Obolis campaign system. Obolis campaign system, whichever. Uh, so first up is some um, bonus crusade rewards that the uh, campaign master can potentially hand out to the players. Um, so this includes bonus requisition points. Um, so it says here, at the end of each campaign phase, each player can be awarded additional requisition points based on how their alliance did during that phase. The alliance that earned the fewest war zone points is awarded the most requisition points, representing that alliance calling for aid and doubling their efforts to achieve victory in the following campaign phase. Remember that each player can never have more than five requisition at any point in excess of lost. So um, it suggests here that each player in the third place ranked alliance for that phase gains two bonus requisition. Um, the second ranked alliance, its players gain one bonus requisition and the winners don't get any bonuses because they won. Uh, that sounds fair. It's uh, The thing with the requisition points is it doesn't actually give you an in-game bonus. It just gives you more options for your crusade force, doesn't it? Uh, well, yeah, I mean, how you how you like buy extra units and stuff, but you still have to have the same same points total or or power level or whatever when you're playing your games. So it's uh, it well, seems like a nice bonus without being uh like an unfair balancing mechanic. Well, I mean, I guess the simplest way to look at it as like an equalizer, as it were, is that for one requisition, you can give an extra warlock trait to a character, for example. So it's allowing you to enhance your crusade force in that aspect, as well as yeah. you know increasing your uh, requisition pool and the number of units you can potentially vary in your forces. Um, yeah. And that in itself is then balanced from game to game with the command point balancing system. Yes. So it's it kind of is a it's it's a boon for everyone who could use it, but without pushing them too far forwards. Yeah. And I think it's a it's a neat little it's just a neat little tool to keep the campaign feeling close and tense. It yeah. is, and it's a, it kind of it's also a nice reminder about the purpose of Crusaders, not who's winning the most games and who's smashing everybody. It's like those close fights on the front or where you've maybe you've had a really difficult game but that's caused you to lure your opponent away from a greater conflict going on where they could have been better utilized. So it enables you to tell that story and say because of that, so you got beaten by Typhus and this dead god force enormously in battle, 
but because they were devoted to you, they weren't devoted to this run. And because of that, that requisition has then been funneled to you and you get this many points. So it's not, it's like, it takes away from it being a kind of like, oh, here's a pity requisition point or here's some pity victory points. It kind of encourages you to think about the grand scheme of the battle in the sector, which is the great thing about these, same with Vigilus. Uh, these books aren't about that one game you're playing. It's about the grand arching conflict and the narrative within. Yeah, and I think that does really come across. Um, I mean, there's another sort of like bonus reward system in these uh, edicts, which is bonus experience points that a campaign master can award. Um, so this um, can be based on how each crusade force performs on the battlefield. This should be done at the campaign master's direction in an impartial and consistent manner. So no playing favourites. <laughs> yep. Um, and here are some criteria by which the campaign master can determine experience awards. Note that these could be communicated as a challenge for the players to achieve. Um, and it lists some examples. At the end of each campaign phase, each player from the winning alliance gains five experience points to distribute freely across units in their crusade force, which I think is a nice little you know, like yep. reward for winning that phase. Get some more experience yeah, on your again, units. That's... That's the emphasis on uh, each player from that winning alliance. So the defenders have had a really, really tough time of it. Even if like only two players managed to hold their games out of seven or eight or whatever, it then like shares that amongst the rest of the alliance. And again, it gives that kind of feeling of scale to the battles and the. Um, <clears throat> then what the I really like. Across. I really like the second one because this is the sort of thing that cultivates rivalries between the players in the campaign. So this is. If a player defeats an enemy player who defeated them in their previous meeting in the campaign, <laughs> after that game, the winning player can select one additional unit from their army to be marked to greatness. So, getting your revenge in the grudge match. Um, and and then finally, I feel bad with this one. It's almost like a little bit of a pity prize, but... Um, at the end of a campaign phase, if a player lost all the games they played during that phase, they can roll 1d6. They gain that many experience points to distribute freely across the units in their crusade force. <laughs> well, I mean, Bless if, if you get smashed in every single game, it's an experience. Yeah, but if you, no but if so, more battle harder than, uh, than that army, definitely. You'd be reaching bloody drank for sure. Yeah. <laughs> Again, you think you think about those guard regiments who stay on the same front and out of two hundred men, uh, every battle they lose a hundred and hundred and twenty. So by the end of the, the campaign, there's only like two or three soldiers left, or probably sergeants and commanders from the initial outlook. So it's not all glory and victories, it's slogs and attrition. So yep. I see where they're going with that. But like you say, it is difficult to kind of make it to not feel like a pity prize. But at the same time, uh, soldiers need to soldier. Some people die. But yeah, and these are just suggestions on how to do it, and all of them are between um, a D6 uh, amount of XP, 3 XP, or 5 XP. It's not like it's you know bucket loads handing out, but it's just a nice little thing, which if something particularly fancy or worthwhile has happened in a game that the campaign master might decide, you know what, they get some experience for that. Yeah. You know, if, if it is the infamous guardsman with a lasgun destroying a land raider, maybe he gets some experience yeah. for it. <laughs> I mean, extra rations. You'd, you'd mark him for greatness anyway, wouldn't you? 
you think. <laughs> if that ever happens, you'd be like, that unit. The Emperor will definitely know his. That, uh, that Gretchen that pulls down a Blade Guard veteran. <sighs> exactly. <clears throat> and it'd be interesting to see how these interact with, because I know, I've not read it, but I've got friends who got the Drukhari Codex, and their narrative based crusade rules affect not only what's happening in during their games, but also around and outside their games, based on like the fine pits and the experiences they gain around that. So getting those to tie in with the story of Caradon, I think would be really exciting. Yeah, I'm looking forward to covering um, Drukhari on Crusade. It will hopefully yeah. be a feature in one of the imminent episodes in the near future, uh, because it does sound like a particularly good set of Crusade rules for that faction. It's getting me very excited for the ad make book, which is hopefully <laughs> any week now. Uh, mm-hmm. And all the fancy gubbins my tech priests will be looking for during a crusade. Sure, he wants to defend Metallica, but at the same time, there's STLs to find. <laughs> <laughs> well, speaking of other things to be doing, um, there is the next part of the uh, campaign master edicts are the secret orders. Um, and I think this is a, a fun little addition that can be tracked along the campaign weeks. So this is, if the players are using missions that use secondary objectives or agendas, and it's worth noting that this whole campaign system has been written to allow the different ways to play to function with it. And I think it speaks to Games Workshop's ongoing support now through 9th edition. Yeah, and even the fact that it mentions agendas, which are obviously crusade base and um, secondary objectives which are kind of more match play focused that again is a really nice way for them to say look you can use these rules in match play in narrative play out to play do what you want so having that just down there to hope people hope to inspire people I think is absolutely wicked yes it sounds like a good system uh, it's always good if they give you the option uh, you know as as we talk about a lot finding new ways to play right the uh the whole yeah. thing about narrative is you kind of do what you want with your group so to some people you might want to use the full on crusade system with all of the admin that involves but others might want to play narratively but just use the match play rules and you know that's fine as well right yeah well pick and choose and do what you want to do again it's giving people the option and the resources to play what the play the games that they want to they want to play yeah if the players are using missions that use secondary objectives or agendas, array, the campaign master can introduce secret orders. These are hidden campaign objectives that players can attempt to achieve to gain more war zone points for their alliance. The campaign master can assign these to players at their discretion, or they can decide that at the start of each campaign phase, each player should roll a d6 and consult the table below to determine which secret order they have for that campaign phase. Either way, the campaign master should also have a record of each player's secret order for that campaign phase. And the D6 table is just the six different sort of categories of agendas slash secondaries. Okay. So it's either battlefield supremacy, purge the enemy, no mercy, no respite, shadow operations, etc., etc. Right. And in every instance, um, if the player wins one or more battles in the current campaign phase in which they earned experience points from a battlefield supremacy agenda or victory points from a battlefield supremacy secondary objective, then they complete that secret order. Right. So basically, if you achieve 
your secret order category of secondary in any game that phase, then you can put your secret order for that phase. Does that make sense? Yeah. Uh, yeah. 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 You then gain an additional two warzone points for your alliance. Yeah. Um, which is actually, you know, a noticeable amount, especially if. Mm. <laughs> I almost imagine this being the secret reveal at the end of the campaign phase, where, you know, at club night or whatever, all the alliances are gathered together, and you announce the total war zone points before the addition of the secret orders. Yep. And then reveal, like, one by one, how many players achieved their orders and how they influence the final score for that uh, and you get campaign full phase. You go full Columbo with OG one more thing I almost forgot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. By the way, did any of you complete your secret orders? It it sounds like that would be quite uh quite easy for most players to do that. I mean, I guess it would probably come down to how willing you are to commit to it and what force you're bringing. So yeah. for example, um if you're playing with a, I don't know, a chaos force, and you've got one chaos sorcerer. If you roll up Warcraft, yeah, as your single thing, you might find it difficult in the two, maybe three games that you play in those uh, in that phase to not cut uh, to try and spend time completing a witchcraft agenda or secondary when yeah. you might otherwise have wanted that sorcerer to be doing things influencing the battle directly. Yeah, it, it sounds uh it sounds like it's less of a challenge to do it and more of a a kind of um just a Are thing to keep to in mind. Yeah. Yeah. Like, like you I think it could also go this. the other way though. I think because obviously the campaign master's supposed to be neutral, if they've got one uh, alliance or maybe a, even a specific player who's going for the same uh, agenda for like purge the enemy, because there's a lot of fairly easy ones in there, kill some units, kill a character, etc. Yeah. You can then kind of Encourage them to okay, cool. So you're now going to do shadow operations if you want those extra points. Yeah, encourage them to adjust their playstyle a bit more. Maybe stop it from going stale. Uh, excite them to try something new. And uh, again, yeah. it's a really nice way to stop one trick ponies or the same strategies and same strategies being used over and over again. Yeah, yeah. try assigning a battlefield supremacy secret order to um, a crusade force that looks like a very static gun line or castle. Yeah, I guess it exactly. When you say the the uh, campaign master needs to be, should be neutral, you you could have it as a another balancing mechanic, where the players who are doing better get given you know the Warcraft or the, uh, you know the, uh, the the complicated ones, and the players who are not performing as well get just kill stuff. Very true. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, so there's, I, I think, again, it's a very useful tool for balancing the tension within the campaign and making sure that no one faction is running away with it, I guess. Um, and then the other, I say element, but it's, it, it's not too, um, involved. It's the legendary missions. So basically, in this, um, entire supplement. Um, there's three of these basically perfect candidates for mission focus um, mm-hmm. uh, examples. So three fancy legendary missions 
that are meant to represent particularly notable conflicts that happen within the narrative of the campaign. Um, so in the style of the like Echoes of War, for, like Vigilus. And of, of these three legendary missions, one of them is associated with phases one, two, and three of the campaign, and at the campaign master's discretion, they can encourage or dictate that certain players play the legendary missions probably as the last game of that phase in order to emulate well the narrative of the campaign more closely, I guess, and just have some fun because they are very unusual missions. Okay. I'm into Which, it. Yeah, we're going to revisit them in a little bit later this show because the second part of our coverage is going to be basically a series of mini mission focuses on each of them. Nice. Because I think they're all really cool. So I want to give them um, a good little um, well, investigation, really. Um, so yeah, so we've got the war zone phases and strategic values, grand alliances, all that sort of stuff for the campaign system. We've got uh, campaign master edicts to hand out bonus requisition, experience, even war zone points. And we've got the legendary missions. And then finally, the other main distinguishing feature of the obelisk campaign that makes it the war for Charidon, the war for Metallica, is the three brand new theatres of war. Now, these are tied to each of the phases of the campaign, representing the way that the war front is going as the um, like timeline of the campaign progresses. I really, really like these. <clears throat> After reading the, um, the, the lore and the narrative, like I say, the first half of the book is, Seeing these, I really got that instant reflection of, oh, cool, so that reflects this and that reflects that. That's this element of the battle happening. <clears throat> and I think it's a really great idea to have this all in one place to then encourage people to add to, uh, flesh out their own bits, write their own kind of theatres of war. Yeah, it's really, really good, and I really can't wait to uh, do my <laughs> own irradiated wasteland. Uh, yeah, I mean, that is the theatre of war for phase one. So the idea is that all games played in any given phase will use the theater of war for that phase. So if you play two free games in phase one, all of them will be played in irradiated wastelands. Um, in phase three, they'll all be played using ascendancy of entropy. So all okay. players will be playing with these theaters of war in effect for that campaign phase. So one of my, um, one of my personal favorite things about these theaters of war is because I'm fairly sure I've said it on, on the podcast before, about the table and the terrain being the third army on the table. It's um, it's such an important element of it. But I think like the battlefield needs to be that third player, because in, in Warhammer 40,000, it's very rarely that the battlefield itself isn't trying to kill you. <laughs> True. So I, yeah. I, I think they really do add a layer to the game where it's, you know, it's not just, oh, we're going to play a few thousand points and shoot each other off the table and be done by turn three, let's go get a drink. It's... um. Right, so everything in my army is minus one toughness. Ah, mm -hmm. okay. So, uh, I do want to go through these one by one because I do think they're really interesting. Um, I mean, in addition to the fact that they're going to define the games in a uh, Obelisk campaign, 
I also think these are great just theatres of war for use in other scenarios or games, particularly Absolutely. the um, uh, Ascendancy of Entropy one, I think is a really fascinating one to sort of cherry pick for future scenarios. But we'll start with the, um, the Radiated Wasteland. Um, so this one is a, it's a pretty straightforward one to use. So it includes a battlefield twist, where after determining attacker and defender, the attacker rolls 1d3 to determine which battlefield twist from those listed below is in effect for the duration of the battle. Um, I don't know if, uh, Chris, would you like to run through these? Sure, no problem. Uh, so number one is Rad Zone. Um, the site of a recent Rad bombardment, only by taking shelter within the ruins of buildings, is one able to avoid the highest levels of radiation. Again, if you know anything about uh, Forge or Metallica, it is an irradiated wasteland. There is no biological life on there due to the amount of radiation. Uh, so again, it ties into that really, really nicely. So each time an attack targets an enemy unit, unless all models in that unit are wholly within an area terrain feature, subtract one from the toughness characteristic of models in that unit for that attack. Because everyone is withering away from radiation unless they've managed yep. to hide in a building. Yep. Yep. So that really, that, and it's all units, so it really forces you to think about the battlefield and how you want to deploy and go even where you place your objectives. Do you want to place them out in the open to try and tempt your opponent to all their now weaker models over there? Or do you want to put them all in a building to be safe, to try and keep your guys protected? But especially when you consider that the two primary forces involved in this conflict are the Death Guard and Forge of Metallica, both of which have army rules that tend to reduce the toughness of their opponents even further. Yeah. Yeah, neither have very healthy lifestyle choices at all. Um, uh, so the second one is Ash Winds, uh, where the, the sterile extermination of all living things in the area has created an ash wasteland, the flat. Featureless surroundings are now hounded by the winds of ash. All that is left is the planet's flora and fauna forever gusting across its surface. Um, at the start of each battle round, the player who took the first turn rolls 1d6 adding one to the result for each consecutively preceding battle round that there were no gusts of ash winds. On <laughs> 4 plus, until the end of the current battle round, there is a gust of ash winds. Randomly determine one battlefield edge to be the direction of the winds are gusting towards. And then it says, while there is a gush of ash winds, models cannot target units that are more than 24 inches away with ranged attacks. That's enormous. Mm -hmm. uh, and each time a unit advances or makes a charge move, so long as every model in that unit would finish and move closer to the battlefield edge, the winds are gusting towards. Add two to the inch, add two inches to the distance that <laughs> unit can move, or for that advance or charge move. That's amazing, because the wind yeah. is carrying you. Whee! So yeah, th those are gunline armies that have maybe had a really good couple of games are now in deep, deep trouble. Mm. <laughs> But again, that all comes down to a 4-plus and what table edge the Ash Winds are blowing against. Yeah. So again, that really adds to the peril of the battlefield you're fighting on, where you don't need to just consider what your arm, what your opponent's army is doing, but what could happen on the table at any given turn. Yeah. Uh, then the third one is the Long March. With many a waypoint <laughs> evacuated, shelter brought low and stockpile ruined, armies are forced on the Long March to reach their destination. Such conditions put these warriors to the brink. Units cannot advance. Each time a charge roll is made for a unit, if you roll a double, that charge automatically fails. 
Oof. And models cannot use any rules that ignore wounds. <laughs> Why? Because basically everyone is suffering from extreme exhaustion that has already been setting in prior to the battle. So yeah, people are... Their stamina is low, their endurance is tested. You so know, you can it's, imagine... It's a hard time. You can imagine for the last uh, round of games for that phase, everybody's on one march, everyone's absolutely battered and tired. They've barely got anything left in them. They're fought in the rad zones and they're irradiated. They're fought in the ash winds and they're blind and choking and can't see. Uh, It's a really nice kind of culmination of what attrition can do to a force. Again, absolutely love it. I think it's great. And what's interesting is that this is one of those examples of you roll once on a table and apply that for the entire game. So you're not having to remember lots of rules repeatedly and without throughout that campaign phase, you're probably going to suffer from one or two different effects not necessarily rad zone for three games in a row yeah Um, and then the second half of this theatre of war is the mysterious objective markers so at the start of the first battle round if the battle includes any objective markers starting with the player taking the first turn each player selects a different objective marker to be a mysterious objective marker if possible the player must select an objective marker that is not in either player's deployment zone. Each time a unit from army performs the following action, roll 1d3 to determine the explorer. Basically, it's an action to investigate that marker. So, the way I read this is that there would only be two mysterious objectives out of however many are on the battlefield. Yeah. But you and your opponent have picked one each, and they're probably going to be no man's land ones. Yeah. Yeah, again, where it says, if possible, a player must select an objective marker that is not in either player's deployment zone, based yeah. on the size of the table and how many objective marks are on there, that's that's fairly manageable. And again, it encourages you Pretty to um, spice up your objectives quite nicely. So your infantry units can basically perform an investigate action if they're not in engagement range on the, on, on the objective. And you roll a d3 to determine which mysterious objective that turns out to be for the game. Um, on a 1, it's a shield system. So until the end of the battle, each time a ranged attack is allocated to a model within range of this mysterious objective marker, add one to the armor saving throw made for the attack uh, hit against that attack, which is really cool. Yep. The yep. shield generator is protecting find, you. You just find this random uh, minute shield generator, you give it a kick and it goes... <laughs> or on a two, you found some abandoned supplies. Uh, when this effect is determined, that player gains D3 command points. That's amazing. That's huge. Or on a free, it's some lost tech. Uh, when this effect is determined, select one unit from your army that is in range of the mission's objective market. Then select one weapon profile. Sorry. Then select one weapon profile models in that unit are equipped with. Until the end of the battle, each time a model in that unit makes an attack with that weapon profile, add one to that attack's wound roll. So, nice. for example, great, you might pick bolt rifles. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, or your, your, your Skitari Rangers have found some uber-enhanced rad ammunitions for the galvanic uh, rifles. Start I slamming mean, those into the chambers. I do yeah. like how it makes you pick the weapon. It's not just like the unit always yeah. gets the sun to wound. So yeah. it could be a Stati's chainsword on your yes. assault intercessors, yeah. but all the squad's chainsaws now better. <laughs> Mm. Uh, plus one to wound yeah, again, choppers. It's that, that kind of on on the fly thing of 
I really hope I get this objective. No, I didn't. Okay, that's fine. I'll have to work with this. But I think the game D3 command points, that's enormous. That's, uh, to be, I don't think any, any of them are particularly, you wouldn't roll any of those and think, oh, that's not very good. <laughs> no. To be honest, Dan, I know you just sort of alluded to plus one to wound choppers there, but I'd be quite tempted by plus one to wound shooters. I mean, that too. <laughs> the sheer number of bullets you put out of range there, wounding almost anything on fours. Yeah, plus one yeah. to wound on anything in a unit of 30 is pretty strong. Yeah. Plus one to wound on stick bombs when you throw a ten of them. <laughs> Oof. That's well, rough. The, um, after the article we saw on Warhammer Community, if you've got a couple of arc rifles in this Kastari squad, so they're wounding vehicles on threes. <laughs> that'd, be a, that'd be sweet. Nice ready you got there. <laughs> Shame. Um, so yeah, so that's the Theatre of War for Phase 1, the irradiated wasteland, where basically you're going to be suffering from some hazardous environment and there's going to be a pair of mysterious objectives to uncover. And then into Phase 2... You're going to have to correct me on this one, but I believe it's Metallican Rebout, is it? Readout. Readout. Yeah. Um, so this is, I thought this is an interesting system. So this is basically meant to be when, uh, in the narrative, um, Metallica and the other Imperial forces are basically really holding up and re-establishing their defences and creating their sort of initial, um, I, what's the word like? Not being chaired, the opposite. Yeah, like the, the the kind of overarching front. Yes, like the, the, the battle they're, does. They're, they're rallying the from the initial the point, attack yeah. of the Death Guard, and they're actually finding to uh, opportunities to really redouble their defenses now and set up a coordinated defense. Yeah, and yeah, the 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 conflict swings either way. Well, three ways of you, including the um the raiders throughout so again it kind of plays on the um one part of the metallica readout could be going really well one could not one could be already on its way to the essence of entropy play games and find out yeah and i think this one's a really cool one because it's a theater of war that has just one rule so it's again a simple one but it's going to be in effect for all the um games that every player plays for that campaign phase in phase two um yep. and it, it's kind of got a little bit of um like poker-faced counterplay elements to it. It's really cool. So this is um, Battle Assets. After choosing deployment zones, the defender selects one Battle Asset from the list below. Alternatively, they can randomly select an asset by rolling a d6. The attacker then selects a battlefield, uh, a Battle Asset. They cannot select the same Battle Asset as the defender. Alternatively, the attacker can roll a d6 to pick. I like the fact that the defender picks first, and that removes one choice from the attacker. But also, the attacker yeah. knows what the defender's choice is at that point, so they can then make a counter pick. Yeah, like I say, it's very poker face, which is great. So we'll just zip through these. It's basically representing um, either the additional assets that are available to the defending force because the battle is taking place in somewhere that's a stronghold of theirs. Um, or it's representing the assets that have been brought to bear by the attackers now that they've they've determined their beachheads, they know where the attacks are, on what fronts and what weaponry they need to bring to bear to break those defences. 
Okay. What have we got then? So on a, um, our six options are as follows. Number one, the Repulsion Shield Dome. Each time a ranged attack is made against a unit from your army, if that unit is wholly within your deployment zone, subtract one from the strength characteristic of that attack. Yes. So imagine you sort of like, you know, your bubble shield that's over your um, trench line or whatever. Yeah. Anything trying to shoot you while you're in it is going to be weakened by passing through the shield. It's kind uh, of like a bundle-wide flare shield from the days of the old Horus Heresy. <laughs> Pretty much. Um, or two is the Grav Shock Mines. Enemy units treat all obstacles and area terrain features that are not wholly within their own deployment zone as having the difficult ground trait. Which I believe is the one that's minus two inches to move and yeah. charge. Yeah. Yeah. Which so is, as soon uh, as you're crossing... Yeah. Yeah. So as soon as you're crossing no man's land and your opponent's deployment zone, Oof. you're really struggling to move. Yeah, especially if you go through other terrain as well. <laughs> yeah. Because uh, as as far as I can tell, that stacks. So. Uh, yeah. hmm. Um, on a free, there is a new spheric data uplink, or basically Wi-Fi. Yep. <laughs> um, add three inches to the range of all aura abilities of models in your army. To a maximum of 12 inch. If your army is battle forged, roll 1d6 each time you spend a command point, and on a 6, the command point is refunded. Nice. So it enhanced communication between your forces. Yep. Uh, a 4 is rapid engagement. You can reroll charge rolls for units in your army and yes. add one to charge rolls made for units in your army. Yes. So, especially if, as we'll get to in a bit, um, you're a certain deep striking death guard army using lots of plague marines appearing out of nowhere, then reroll charges on plus one is making deep strike a far more feasible um, concept. Yep. Uh, five, aggression enhancers. So basically, friends on collars, butchers' nails, all that sort of stuff. Yep. Each time a model in your army makes a melee attack, if it is a unit that made a charge move this turn, you can reroll the hit roll. <laughs> and each time a unit from your army piles in or consolidates, models in that unit can move an additional inch. Okay. And then finally, uh, six is a transonic emitters. Each time a model in your army targets a unit that is within nine inches with a ranged attack, add one to that attack's hit roll. Nice. So, basically, you know, you're going to be getting some kind of army-wide bonus to apply to your forces for that game. First pick goes to defender, but the attacker then gets to pick based on what their opponent has taken. So, if the defender feels like taking some grab wave shock mines to reduce your movement, maybe the attacker is going to choose to take some rapid engagement so they can re-roll those charges and add one to them. Yeah, to try and directly counter it. I can also see if there's a, as you were, you mentioned, if there's a specific army that really wants one of those, then the defender might just pick that one first to to ban it from them. Yeah, exactly. So like you, you take that re-rollable uh, eight inch charge away from the death guard and watch watch the player face turn to gristle. <laughs> Shame. 
Yeah, they'd be like, fine, I'll increase the range of my auras, including my contagions. Mm. No, please don't do that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's there's no bad ones, is there? So you're never going to be sort of too disappointed, but I can definitely see some fun uh, yeah, interactions with, with pinching the one you think they want or... Yeah, it's funny how this is one of these typical nine fed tables that says you can pick or randomize, and I do think that this is one of the ones where picking has its own like fun incentive side yeah. to it, rather than just going, "Oh, we both get a random bonus." It's like, no, you you pick first as the defender, and I, mean, I will make my informed decision as the attacker. Yeah, this is and again, it's definitely not. Sorry, Danny, it's definitely not one you'd randomize for most games, is it? No. <laughs> well, I'd be interested to see if uh, a campaign master is following the specific player is maybe having a little bit too much luck and says, cool, you can roll for yours. <laughs> but it says, yep, that's cool, I'll, I'll let you roll for it. Well, I mean, I guess um, as a campaign master, a fun little addition you could do to this is if you're probably going to have players playing two to three games with this mechanic in Phase 2, maybe you say that on an individual level, once you've picked one of them, you can't pick it again in mm. a future game for that phase. Yeah, that works. Um, like, unless circumstance lines up there as the attacker, like, you have to pick one you picked before because the other ones have been chosen by the defender, for example. Yeah. Like, I mean, you'd have to have played, like, five, six games by that point yeah. for that to come up, so. Oh, I, I can't wait to play five or six games, I'll be perfectly honest. Uh. <laughs> I remember that's, when. That's about three years worth of games in uh, current exchange, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Um, so, yeah. So, that one, again, I think is quite a, a straightforward but very clever feature of Warfare Phase 2. And then moving on to what I think is probably one of my favourite ones from a very narrative-driven aspect is the feature of Warfare Phase 3, the ascendancy of entropy. So this is when, obviously, the Death Guard offensive is at its peak and you know, Nurgle's gifts are running rampant across the sector. Yeah, Typhus is doing Typhus things. He is. Now, again, it's a battlefield twist, but it, and it is just this one rule, but it is a very clever one, and it, it, it's kind of a few rules lumped into one by the end. So, at the start of each battle round... And I think it's worth pointing this out because when I first read it, I felt like this was a, a, a start of game roll once. That's it. It's not. It's the start of every battle round. The player who is taking the first turn rolls 3d6. If the result is a 7, the player taking the second turn this battle round then rolls 1d6 and determines against the table next to it um, the result which battlefield twist will apply for the remainder of the battle. So not just for this phase, or this battle round, but if you roll a 7, roll a d6, apply that roll for the rest of the game. If the result includes any doubles, the battlefield twist that corresponds to that double applies for the remainder of the battle. For example, if the 3d6 rolls were a 1, uh, a one and a 4, then the result of a 1 would apply. For the remainder of the battle. If the result is a triple, 
and if it's a if it's a triple one, three, or five, then all of the odd numbered battlefield twists apply for the remainder of the battle. <laughs> for example, if it was a, if it was a yeah, if it was a triple three, then um, results uh, one, three, and five would be in effect. And the same is true if you roll a triple two, four, or six, then all the even numbered ones are in effect from that point onwards. <laughs> None of these are good. <laughs> None of them are good. They are all um, cumulative, and you're rolling every battle round. So if in battle round one you roll uh, a seven, then you roll d6, and that's now in effect. But if in battle round two you then roll a double three, you've now got a number three in play as well as whichever one you had from round one. <laughs> and then if you roll a triple... Uh, even number, then you'd have the one from round one, number three, and results two, four, and six. And yeah, obviously, that'd be silly. <laughs> so there is an extremely unlikely chance that you could have all of these taking place during your game, and it would just, ugh, it would just be your armies crawling against each other as okay, slithering. Yeah. <laughs> so. The premise being that as the game goes on, chances are towards the end of it, you're probably going to have most, if not all, of these effects yeah. in effect. It's just how quickly that rot sets in is going to be the variable, but it's probably going to happen by the end of the game. So if you if you don't roll a seven or a double or a triple, then then what? Do you just roll on the table and it applies for that turn only? And no, you carry in, that on case, in that case, there's nothing added for the turn. Okay. It's only if you get a double, a triple, or if the result is a seven. Right. It's not even seven or more. Yeah. So, so you the, you could conceivably roll have none of them. Yeah, have effect. none of them the entire game. Yes. <laughs> okay then. It, because chaos is fickle. <laughs> yes, quite. But even though it seems feasible that the gods might spare you, they're probably not gonna. <laughs> yeah. So. We'll just quickly run through these, but basically they're all a bunch of stat line debuffs and they're all going to be affecting everyone and slowly stacking upon each other as the game goes. Okay. So this includes units always count as being below half strength. If a unit is already below half strength, each time a roll test is failed, that unit uh, an additional model flees. Okay. The save characteristics of all models is reduced by one. <laughs> okay. Subtract one from the toughness characteristic of all models. Okay. Subtract one from the strength characteristic of all models. Okay. Units cannot make use of the objective secured ability, and units cannot perform actions in a turn in which they made a normal move. Okay. And finally, each time a model makes an attack, the hit roll, wound roll, damage roll, and rolls to determine the number of attacks cannot be re-rolled. Okay. Some of those are quite tasty. It, it, it's great because it's not like either of you are going to go, yes, you're both going to go, oh, God. Yeah, it is worth what? in mind that this does technically affect Nurgle units and models. Yes. And that obviously is in the spirit of fairness in some semblance of balance for a game of 40k. However, that said, I think depending on the game and how the players feel about it, I think it would be really cool to potentially play a game where the Nurgle units are not affected by this. 
you know, I was really surprised that there wasn't a little designer's note at the bottom saying, have a discussion with your opponent or ask the campaign master and see if Nurgle are exempt from this, because it does make a bit of sense. Yeah, I mean, I could just, I could imagine if, say, the forces of chaos had one command phase, uh, command phase, campaign phase, one and two, and the <laughs> the other alliances were just having to try and play campaign phase three to draw the campaign. I feel like that might be a scenario where the uh, the Nurgle worshippers have earned the right to be immune to this table <laughs> yeah. for phase three. <laughs> Agreed. So I've got three dice with me. I'm just going to roll three results to simulate three battle rounds and see what we get. Go on, get my First what? one is uh, double six. So double six would be... Blight. Each time a model makes an attack, no re-rolls for hits, wounds, so no damage. Uh, then battle round two. Double five. <laughs> So, so we've now got no objective secured, and you can't perform an action after a normal move. And then the last one is... Oh, maths is hard. 15. No doubles, no triples, so nothing for that one. Good. Give us, give us round four. <laughs> round four. Ah, seven! <laughs> <laughs> so roll a d6. What? Three. Rot. So we're now at minus one toughness. Slight atrophy and rot. Yeah, and that's just like, those are the yeah. four turns of the game that are going to be the main influences. But no re-rolls to basically attack rolls for the entire game. No yeah. objective secured from turn two onwards. And then even by turn four, everyone's at minus one toughness for those people who are still alive. And then not being able to do actions after you move as well means you're going to have to spend a turn getting to an objective and then another turn just to investigate it, whatever. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's going to be a spicy game. <laughs> yeah, it is. And I think this is a a brilliant candidate to use in any sort of scenario that involves Nurgle, Demon Worlds, just generally you know, the forces of entropy and decay. Like I'm sure there are a few narratives environments where this would be perfect. Definitely. My brother's a Death Guard player, and I think we're going to um, probably play that a couple of times. Yes. We'll, we'll probably do one affecting both armies, one only affecting my army, so not his, and then see what happens there. So that is the nuts and bolts of the um, Obolis campaign itself. Um, there's a cool system for campaign phases, a cool selection of theatres of war, to use across them and campaign, uh, campaign master edicts for how the campaign master can really just tweak um, the rewards for players and how those alliances are competing across the campaign. I honestly would say that at this point, I think this is the probably the most well-rounded narrative campaign supplement, as it were, that's in an official GW publication for 9th edition at this point. If you've got a group of players and you want to play a campaign and you just want to pick something up that tells you how to do that, this is probably where you want to go. Yeah, I agree. And again, it's really good for any players of any army, for any game size, any mission. It just kind of gives you those um, those foundations of what a campaign could look like if you wanted to put just that little bit of narrative on it. Yeah. Um, 
so we're going to take a quick break there, and I'm going to come back, and we're going to blitz through a couple of mini mission focuses to have a look at the specifics of these legendary missions. So we'll be back in a second, guys. Are you enjoying the Narrative Wargamer podcast? If you are, why not check out our community Facebook group at Narrative Wargamer on Facebook. We share our latest hobby projects and narrative battles and aim to grow a community for casual and narrative 40k players. We're always excited to see the awesome things our listeners are working on and it is a great place to hang out with other like-minded hobbyists. You can also find us on Instagram at Narrative Wargamer and over on Twitter at Narrative40k regular hobby updates on our 40k projects. And we're back guys. So, as we were just discussing, the Obolis campaign is run over these three phases and at the campaign master's discretion, each phase has a legendary mission associated with it, representing a particular conflict happening during that phase of war. So as we go through all these, bear in mind that each one would also be played using the relative theatre of all phase campaign phase. Right. Because <laughs> it's still a game being played in that phase of the campaign. So, for phase one, we have the route on Okarim, which basically is the... Um, it's the first time that the Imperial forces are suffering a massive loss and the Death Guard are just really piling the pressure on. So it's a, it's an evacuation mission, basically. Imperial forces are attempting to withdraw from their positions uh, without suffering too much in the way of casualties, whilst the Death Guard are just pressing the advantage. Okay. I won't spoil the, um, I won't spo- spoil the story, but this... It plays out particularly brutally on the Imperium side in the uh, in in the book itself. Um, yeah, you don't want to be a mortal human living and working in this system. <laughs> I don't think you want to be a mortal human working in any system in the forty first millennium. To be fair, unless it's possibly Central Ultramar at, at best. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um. So yeah. So. Uh, we're going to uh, run through the sort of bits of information outlined on here. Uh, it says, This mission has been designed to reflect a fighting retreat by a force with limited mobility uh, as they come under fire from a determined attacker. Therefore, when mustering armies, it is thematically appropriate for the defenders to select few, if any, units that have a movement characteristic of more than 12 inches. So just a good design. I appreciate the use of the term thematically appropriate in a publication. I think that's... Mm, that is what I like to see. <laughs> yeah, and again, whilst the narrative is you know the Death Guard pressing Imperials, in theory, this mission could be picked up outside of the campaign and played between any players of any factions, even in the campaign. There's the reason why it couldn't be the Raiders that are attacking the Imperials for that particular game. But yeah, it's quite flexible in that regard. So, a few mission rules: a force in retreat. The defender cannot put any units into strategic reserve. Yep. Aircraft and any units that start the battlefield in a location other than the battlefield uh, cannot score victory points for the defender because they have objectives related to basically leaving the battlefield. Yep. Um, the defender's models cannot be set up or finish a move within six inch of the attacker's battlefield edge. 
So basically, it's it's just a little rule that's basically saying, look, you're going that way. Like your force yeah, is fleeing. You're not going to be moving towards the attacker. <laughs> um. So at this point, it's worth describing the deployment zone. I like the deployment map. So imagine your standard rectangular 40k table. Um, the center line from one long table edge to the other um, is basically half of the board is no one's deployment zone. And the other half is shared between both the attacker and defender. So the defender gets a 12-inch line of deployment back from the center line. There is then a 9-inch gap between the rear of the defender's deployment zone and the front of the attacker's deployment zone. So they're really on their tail, you know, yeah. at the start of the game. And then the attacker's deployment zone is from there to the short table edge on that half of the board. So you really have got the defenders starting just off-centre and the attackers def- uh, setting up on their heels as the defenders are trying to escape off the far table edge. Hmm. Quite tight, then. Yes. Um, and while they're doing that, the automated fire zones will be in effect. So, after declaring reserves and transports, but before setting up any remaining units, starting with the attacker, the players alternate placing automated fire zone markers until there are three on the battlefield. So, basically, I think automated turrets, as a Mr. Douglas mission has been frantically producing over in our community group. Oh. When placing these markers, they must be placed in one inch the defender's battlefield edge, which is the far table edge, um, and more than six inches from any other automated fire zone markers. At the start of each battle round after the first, the players roll off. The winner selects one automated fire zone marker that has not already been selected this battle round, then selects one of the following options. Engage. The closest visible unit within 24 inches of the marker, suffers <laughs> D3 mortal wounds. Or they can choose for it to stand down, in which case it has no effect. The players then roll off again, repeating this process until each automated fire zone marker has been selected. Which is hilarious, because it means that initially, the closest units are probably going to be the defender's units. Yep. As they're trying to <laughs> run towards this defensive line. So the attacker wants to win these roll-offs so that the Imperial forces get caught in the crossfire of the defense network. It's like a game of the chase, isn't it? <laughs> but then in theory, as the defender gets more units off the table, the closest enemy units to these automated systems will then be the enemy units. <laughs> so like these turrets are kind of firing indiscriminately. <laughs> well, classic Imperial technology, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and then units in the Defender's Army can perform the escape action, uh, which is if one or more units from your army uh, can perform this action at the start of the movement phase, each unit from your army that performs it must be within three inches of the Defender's Battlefield Edge. A unit cannot perform it if there are any enemies within six inches of them, and the action is completed in your movement phase. If it is completed, you remove the unit from the battlefield, but it does not count as having been destroyed, because it's escaped, and it, you know, it wasn't being held back or harassed by enemies. It's gonna run up. Yeah. And then the uh, primary objectives for the mission basically revolve around the defender 
escaping the board and the attacker killing them before they do. Yep. Um, you've got the attacker scores two points each time a unit from the defender's army is destroyed. At the end of the battle, the attacker scores two points for each enemy unit from the defender's army that is on the battlefield and not within six inches of the defender's battlefield edge. Um, and the defender scores four victory points each time a unit from that army performs the escape action. And at the end of the battle, defender scores four victory points for each unit from their army. This is in six inches of their battlefield edge. So yeah, get there, get out, and uh, cut them down before they do. Okay, uh, it's a classic scenario, isn't it? That they've uh, they've they've written some kind of rules for over and over over the years. But I like this iteration. I like the whole defensive network that the attackers are trying, uh, the defender is trying to get to. But it's also not that reliable. And I like the starting in the middle of the table. Yes. The attacker right on your heels. It's a nice twist on it. Uh, and then the victory bonus is that the victor can select one unit from their army and they gain a battle honor and a battle trait of their choice. Cool. For their crusade card. Yeah. Which is lovely. Um, what is interesting is obviously that mission will be played with the irradiated wasteland. Yes. So that means that although there are no objective markers for this particular mission, it does mean you'll be battling in either a rad zone, an ash waste, or a long march. So you, I could just imagine if you can't, if your units cannot advance. Yeah, that could um, be rough. That's going to be rough. <laughs> yeah. Just slowly trudging through a hay of the bullets towards the board edge. However, you could be somewhat protected by the uh, the ash wind. Uh, if that yeah, you get a nice gust as you go. Mm. Um, oh, that said as well, Radzone would be pretty horrendous. Oof. Yeah, I mean that's just that's just mean for everyone all the time. Moving on to phase two legendary mission. This is the flood tide on Fathom, which is really cool because. If you get this book in your hands and you have a flick through it, there's a whole bunch of um, scenes on one of the, what I assume is a brand new Warhammer World display table that basically represents the ocean world of Fathom and this sort of like imperial mechanicus oil rig network that's set up over the surface of it. Um, and it looks like a really cool visual and it'd be great to play some games on. Um, oh, it's the um the one they did for Kill Team with the Gene Stealer Claw. Yeah. It's really, really, really good. Um, and in the context of this war zone, it's meant to represent this oil rig that's fought over by the Death Guard and Fortral Metallica on this ocean world. Um, so, Chris, would you like to run us through the, uh, the details for the Flood Tide? No problem. Um, so is it, actually, just before you dive in, this is a pretty standard 9th edition style deployment map where you've got long table edges for attacker and defender, a 24 inch no man's land, and a um, like a cross pattern of evenly spaced five objective markers um, yep. within the sort of centre okay. of the board. So it's a pretty um, symmetrical setup, but the rules that are in effect for it all make it really interesting. So. Go ahead, Chris. No problem. So the mission rules are you've got the Aqua Extraction Pump. 
So units from both players' armies can perform the following action. Aqua Extraction Pump action is one or more units from your army can start to perform this action at the end of your movement phase. Each unit in your army then starts to perform this action must be in range of a different objective marker. A unit cannot start this action while there are any enemy units excluding aircraft in range of the same objective marker. The action is completed at the start of the next battle round. So, yeah, you want to be doing this if you're in the second turn, ideally. Uh, so long as the unit performing it is still within range of the same objective marker. Then goes on to Flooded. So do not use the Theatre of War in this mission. Okay, the good. Of the yeah. <laughs> so we won't actually be using the uh, Metallic and um, Redoubt yeah. for this, but carry on. Uh, the flooding of the Aqua Harvesting Rig is represented by levels, with level 1 being the lowest. At the start of the first battle round, level 1 is active. At the start of each battle round thereafter, any aqua extraction pump action that has been resolved, the flood levels change as follows. If the attacker completed more aqua extraction pump actions than the defender at the start of the battle round, the flood level progresses up to the next level. <laughs> if the defender completed more aqua extraction pump actions than the attacker at the start of the battle round, the flood digresses to the previous level. So it's um, the attacker trying to flood the, the oil rig. <laughs> they're trying to, uh, to drain it. Yeah, so that that's the the yeah the premise of what's to be achieved here, trying to yeah. flood the facility and trying to prevent that from happening. Well, I'm here. player completed more aqua extraction pump actions than the other player at the start of the battle round. The flood level does not change. Uh, it then goes on to the effects of the pump levels as they go. So each flood level is cumulative, and the effects of each flood level last until the flood decreases below that level. These effects are as follows. So level one. Uh, is that where it starts at level 1 or do you have to move up to level 1? Uh, I think it's at the start at level 1. At the start of the first battle round, uh, at the start of the first battle round, level 1 is active, so it could go to 0, but it starts at 1. Brilliant. Uh, so level 1 is to drop 1 inch from the move characteristic of all models, and to drop 1 from all advances and charge rolls, because you get getting wet feet. <laughs> Waiting yep. through water. Yep. Uh, level 2 is to drop 1 from strength characteristics of all models, because it's hard to throw a punch when you're Surrounded by water. Level 3, each time a ranged attack is made against a unit, add 1 to that attack's wound roll. Uh, level 4, when the flood level progresses to this level, and at the start of each battle round thereafter, each character unit suffers D3 mortal wounds, <laughs> each other unit suffers D6 mortal wounds. As you literally drown. <laughs> okay. Uh, level 5, the range characteristic of all ranged weapons that models are equipped with is halved. Nice. And I love a little line here. None of these effects apply to aircraft. <laughs> sure. Yeah, aircraft water is uh, not doing much. But yeah, the idea that as the water levels are going from like you know around your ankles to around your waist to around your chest, you know, if, if you're in the middle of a battle and you're taking shots and your armor's getting cut up and you're bleeding <laughs> out, then yeah, it's like. It's gonna be proving more oh. and more fatal the higher that water level is. Yeah, that's funny. <laughs> We've then got um, shelter from the floods. While a unit is wholly within an area terrain feature and or on a hill or obstacle, it treats the flood level as being one level lower than it is. <laughs> the flood level is currently at level one. The unit is not affected by the flood level. So yeah, the higher you are, the further yeah. you are from the water level. I mean, I reckon in theory, if you had a forty k board where you had more than one level of terrain. If you've got a couple of layers of imperial uh, sector imperial, 
of Sector Mechanicus, I reckon you could arguably say reduce the flood level by one per level you are from the ground. Even if you've got a really nice kind of generic crossover 40k Necromunda board, I think this would work really nicely. Yeah. Uh, it then goes on to sabotage the water rig, where the attacker has the first turn. So they're immediately going to want to try and start flooding stuff. Uh, the primary objectives are victory points are awarded as follows. Uh, there's a progressive objective, where you score four victory points each time a unit from your army successfully completes the accurate extraction from faction. So that's whether you're trying to flood it or decant it. Yep. And that's and it. The victory, the bonus is the victor of this mission gains two requisition points after this battle instead of just one. <laughs> so I do like how there's literally one way to score victory points in this scenario. And it's all about activating those pumps. Yeah. I mean, the funny thing is, the actual finishing water level doesn't determine the victor. It's just you score four victory points each time you complete the action. Yep. So you're both frantically like trying to complete more pump actions to both manipulate the level, but also rack up those victory points. <laughs> uh, yeah, that sounds fun. Yeah. And I, I mean, I think this would be a spectacular one to have a a particularly stylized board for. I could imagine people oh, yes. set it, setting up their sector mechanicus terrain on like um, an ocean floorboard, like um, like a man of war sort of style ocean mat. Yeah, or the black seas, or Arma- or the mantic armada stuff. There's loads of those around. Yeah, I think that'd be cool to see a forty k game played on that sort of environment. Um, uh, yeah, this is um, this is forty k in the water temple, isn't it? <laughs> Just make sure you don't have your iron boots equipped. Yeah. It's just a load of Skitari walking around the, the, the seabed. <laughs> uh, On to our third and final legendary mission, which is very appropriately named Desperation and Despair. Because this one, I think this is has just got Club Night written all over it. This is the epitome of play a game of 40k and to hell with who wins. <laughs> like there's not going to be any real strategy here it's just going to be throwing down and seeing who happens to come out of it by sheer luck and grit and determination okay so i'm already invested <laughs> right so it's just... like when you get a message from the guys at the club saying uh do you have any demon models yes can you bring them all down to the club? oh no oh, oh, oh what's going on just just to be clear <laughs> this is in phase three of the campaign it is does this? Yeah. This is where it's all going, Pete. Also have the ascendancy of entropy rule, battlefield it twist applying. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so things are also going pretty badly for everyone. Mm. Now, let me just describe the deployment map to you, Dan. Okay. So, first of all, there is no no man's land. Okay. It is entirely edge-to-edge deployment zones. Right. Now, take your standard rectangular board yes. and divide it into six tiles, as it okay. were. As if it were the old uh, Realm of Battle boards. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. A two, two by two times six. Now, colour those deployment zones as a checkerboard. Okay. 
and those corresponding colours are your attacker and defender's <laughs> zones. Okay. So, along one line of three tiles, you have attacker zone, defender zone, attacker zone, right. and then the inverse on the other half of the table. Okay, I like it. So it's a checkerboard deployment where everyone is just on top of each other, so yes. you're going to have aspects from both armies all across the table. Right. Now. Uh, so to that end, the, this mission includes the scattered forces rule. During deployment, units cannot be set up within engagement range of any enemy models. Oh, that's so charitable. Yes, yeah, so you can't start <laughs> with an inch, but you could start two inches away from them. Yeah. <laughs> um, during deployment, units that are set up on the battlefield cannot be set up in a location other than their deployment zone, even if they have a rule that allows them to do so, e.g. Yeah. concealed positions. So everyone is on the table. There's no deep strike here. <laughs> units cannot move before the first turn begins, even if they have a rule that allows them to do so. Yeah. So no deep strike, no scout moves. This is basically almost like a snapshot moment of a larger conflict and battle where by this point everyone's committed. Um, imagine, you know, Battle of Pelennor Fields or any, you know, uh, fantasy film or scene where the battle lines have clashed and it's just that mayhem yes. of everyone is in amongst everyone else and no matter which way you turn, you don't know if the next person you're going to see is going to be a friend or a foe. Just close your eyes and swing and hope for the best, I think. Pretty much. So, objective markers, because believe it or not, there are some in this mission. At the place objective markers step of this mission, the players alternate placing a total of six markers, one at a time, starting with the defender. Uh, objective markers can be placed anywhere on the battlefield more than six inches from any edge and more than 12 inches from any other marker. They cannot be set up on top of terrain features or the unstable tree. Blah, 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 blah. So more or less you're going to end up with roughly one per segment of the battlefield. Yeah, sounds like it. Very deliberate. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we've had the we've had the despair part of this mission and then the next rule is the desperation. Unless a unit is within six inches of another friendly unit, each time a morale test is taken for that unit, half its leadership characteristic for that test. Okay. Because until you can find a buddy to stand back-to-back -back with, it's a terrifying place to be. Yeah. However, everyone is also fighting with wild abandon. Each time a unit makes a pile-in or consolidate move, it can move an additional inch for that move. And this is the real kicker. All units are eligible to perform heroic interventions as if they were characters. <laughs> if a unit is already able to perform heroic interventions, it can move an additional inch when doing so. Wow. So that's great because that means the Space Wolves already get uh, army-wide heroic intervention if the conditions are right, but they also get to intervene six inches, so they're heroically intervening seven inches, so they're probably <laughs> intervening faster than they're moving. Just bounce enemy to enemy tearing people apart that's madness so yeah. everyone is scattered across the board and everyone can intervene into combat three inches away and then even consolidate four inches 
I mean, no. it sounds like you could theoretically heroically intervene into your opponent on the first turn. Yes. Like from across your deployment zone into theirs. Pretty, pretty much, yeah. Um, and then there is just one simple primary objective for this mission, which is secure and control. Um, at the end of each player's command phase, the player whose turn it is scores four victory points for each objective marker they control to a maximum of 18 points per turn. Uh, this objective cannot be scored in the first battle round. So it is a maelstrom of conflict, confusion, chaos, and entropy, mm-hmm. all in the name of trying to hold these six objective markers. Uh, that sounds like a that sounds like a wild night. <laughs> it does, right? Oof. Grandfather Nurgle knows how to party. I feel like this couple that with your uh, again, like you said, with the essential to entropy. All kinds of horrible, horrible things can happen. I feel like this needs to be, uh, you know, like um, a three thousand point game or something, doesn't it? <laughs> you ca- you can't just have like you can't just have fifty power level patrol type games like like this. This is going to be big. I'd be tempted to do a randomized unit type deployment as well. So. Uh, Roll a dice. Oh, you're putting all your HQs down next. All your elites, all your heavy supports. <laughs> just for even more kind of sporadic randomness. Well, of what can happen? The, the thing that immediately jumped to mind to me when you were describing the the deployment is this. This sounds like um, a, a, a sick player game with three <laughs> per sides, each taking one little deployment zone. Yeah. Each with like fifty power level or whatever. Yeah. Off you go. Mission, mission objective survive. Yeah. The Royal Rumble of 40k. I like it. Um, and then, funnily enough, the victory bonus uh, for this mission. I love it's the idea that whoever does happen to come out on top of this whirlwind of mayhem, the unit from the victor's army that destroyed the most enemy units gains free additional XP. <laughs> Nice. And again, that's where you see just one lonely guardsman covered in blood, lasguns bent in half, sweating profusely. <laughs> Bayonet snapped, the stub of it still yeah. held in one hand, and he just yeah. does, and he stood on top of a pile of Astartes somehow, and he does not know how he got there. <laughs> His eyeballs are twitching, but he's getting those three XP. Well done. <laughs> Love it. Um, so yeah, those are the legendary missions. Um, and you would think that that in itself is the majority of the narrative content in this book. But you would be wrong. There is even more. So we're going to take another quick break, and we're going to be back with the, basically, selection of additional crusade rules that um, the Book of Rust brings for us. So we'll see you all back here, guys, in just a minute. You gets listen up now. Listen good. The boss has got a message for you all. It looks like some of the boys have been joining the war before they got themselves a proper pen job. How are you kids supposed to get any proper crumping done without a lucky blue chopper or dead flashy shooter, eh? The boss is going to be breaking heads if he captures any of you without a proper pen job. So get your ugly hides to the paint boy over at Narrative War Painter. He'll fix you up. Good and proper, you hear me? Right. Narrative War Painter is now open for painting commissions. Specialising in good quality, army-wide standards, you can get a quote today by contacting me at 
narrativewargamer at gmail.com to discuss any potential hobby projects and so I can help you conquer your horde of grey plastic. You can also check out examples of my work over on Instagram at narrativewargamer. Right you kids, get your loot in the truck and zog off to the penguin. It better be ready and faster when you get back. And make sure to tell them Red Tooth sent you. You might get something extra special. And we are back, guys, with, would you believe it, more content from the Book of Roast. It just never ends. It's just metal shavings and entropy everywhere. <laughs> so, whilst what we talked about previously has been specifically for the campaign system evolving around the charitable sector, there is also a selection of additional crusade rules that are sort of tied to that and um, Warzone Charidon as a whole. Now, this basically is a selection of additional things such as weapon traits, relics, advancements, the sort of selection of usual battle zone, as like the usual crusade um, like rule sets, you know, like the assets that you use when creating your crusade force. Um, but they tend to be tied to either the Grand Alliance that um, you're part of or to the specific factions, so such as Imperial or Chaos and so on. Um, so there's there's a sort of extensive list, but it's kind of only a third of it is going to be available to you as an individual, depending on which alliance you're part of, typically speaking. But um, they're all interesting, and it does introduce... Um, this new little concept to a crusade card, which is a campaign match. Which I think is going to be interesting as we move forward to further publications and presumably other war zones and such in the future. The only thing about this is I would love if they did just a little kind of 10 transfer sheet that came in the campaign book just to like make, to dot those little crusade card <laughs> units with those little transfers so he was part of the Obelisk campaign. Oh, that's but cool. That's I just about that. Yeah, that's a really cool idea. I'm sure this guy's going to do like really nice free hands, or you could do little kind of glyph markings on there. Um, yeah, I'll just yeah, anyway. I'm nerding out. Carry on. <laughs> yeah. So, um, at the end of every battle that is part of an oblate bolus, yeah, you get an mate. Yeah. At the end of every battle that is part of an Abolus invasion campaign, every unit that was part of your Crusade army in that battle that does not already have it gains the Abolus invasion campaign badge. Such a unit gains the Abolus invasion keyword. This will allow it to access various Crusade rules presented in this section. Note that it, note that it keeps this keyword and therefore any associated battle honours for future battles, even if those battles are not part of the uh, Abolus invasion campaign. So... I love the idea that this is basically getting your passport stamp for yeah. your crusade unit. Yeah. 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 <laughs> and and if five years from now you're still playing with the same like crusade roster, you might have a unit in there that's got like three, four campaign badges that it's been involved yeah. in throughout its history. That and I just think that's really cool. It? That'd be pretty yeah. cool. Yeah. This one guy's when we keep talking about it's just got all these patches so <laughs> I was there when Kadia fell. I was there on the eightieth day of Vigilus. 
I was there when Typhus landed on Metallica. <laughs> I stabbed a plate green in the neck and killed him. It was great. <laughs> uh, and basically, just having this keyword is what you have to have in order to be able to take the associated relics and traits and so on tied to this campaign system. Um, so we've got a couple of cool new relics. Um, so I think for uh, Dan's sake, we will go over a couple of the Mechanicum ones. Hey. Or specifically the like Imperial ones. So as I say, they're kind of tied to some of the Grand Alliances. So this one I particularly loved was the, just for the narrative of it more than anything, uh, Xanthon's Haptic Skull. So Xanthon was one of the Metallica's finest artificers, and after bionic enhancement rendered his skull redundant, he used this vestigial bone to house an array of augers, photosensors, and laser sights. This servo skull links to the owner's own nervous system, guiding their aim to ensure the target's destruction. It's like, I don't need this skull anymore. I've already digitized my brain and put it into my chest. Um, so this is for this is an artificer relic for an Imperium inventory model only. Each time an attack is made with the bearer, you can ignore any or all hit roll and ballistic skill modifiers for that attack, and the target does not receive the benefits of cover against that attack. Amazing. So he's literally got a tech priest skull being his spotter for everything. Mm-hmm. Um, do you want to pick one as well, Chris? I was just looking at the um, Metallican augmentation, uh, and again, it ties into being a veteran of the Obelisk Invasion campaign. So, as a mark of respect for lending aid to their Forgeord and its hour of need, the Tech Priest of Metallica bless one of your weapons with their finest augmentations. So, Imperium Infantry model only. When a model gains this Crusade relic, select one weapon it is equipped with that does not have a weapon enhancement and is not a relic or Crusade relic. That weapon gains two weapon enhancement enhancements. It cannot be the same weapon enhancement twice. But the big thing is, these weapon enhancements do not further increase the model's crusade points, so it's a free upgrade. So basically, it's a it's a relic where actually you pick a weapon you have and you apply two weapon enhancements to it. Um, oh, that's cool. But it only increases your crusade value by one for having a relic. The weapon enhancements themselves don't add to the crusade value. Oh, interesting. So it's a really cool way to suddenly really customise... Um, yeah. Uh, your weapon very quickly. Now a, me- a mega Volkite blaster or something. Yeah, basically. and again you could you could model that on a model so easily. Um, let's pull some examples out of the other. So uh, a Rustalker blade or a Skitari galvanic wipe alarm on let's say I don't know a guardsman because we've not spoken about guardsman this, uh, this <laughs> very much. So you know he's killed all those plague marines. He's survived the um, disease entropy and he's just stood there. He's got an arm off. He's shaking in his boots. Uh, so he gets slapped with a nice new relic weapon and uh, gets two crusade relics for it, or two weapon enhancements. Sorry, yeah. not crusade relics. Um, so, funnily enough, uh, the example we've just discussed there is actually one of these new types of relics, the prized relics. So, yep. um, there is an artificer relic for an imperial infantry model, a chaos infantry model, and a a raider's infantry, so like a non-Imperium Chaos one. There was a regular relic to take control of your normal conditions. 
the Metallican augmentation we've just mentioned is a prized relic. So this is when um, a character with the campaign badge as appropriate of battled hardened or higher could take a relic as part of their you know, crusade advancements. But if they take it immediately after winning a battle as part of an Obolis campaign mission, they can instead take a prized relic from this list. The payoff is that you also have to forfeit one war zone point that you just earned from that Ooh. mission. So you're kind of like, rather than contributing the spoils of the war to the war effort, you're kind of like keeping it for yourself. <laughs> That's very admec. Yeah. And the chaos example, which is what I was going to talk about, is Abaddon's writ. So this unassuming bone pendant bears Abaddon's personal sigil, and authority and respect are afforded to those who bear it. Should a recipient failed at spoiler, though, they will live to regret it, for the bone that the pendant is carved from is taken from the previous soul who bore such a favour and who was found wanting. <laughs> Savage. So this is a Chaos Infantry model only, has to be battled hand or higher, you have to have just won an Oboe's mission, and you forfeit a war zone point. However, they add three inches to the range of this model's aura abilities, and this model has the objective secured ability and counts as six models when determining whether they control an objective backer. Nice. So that's a really good relic. Yeah. And and it's the sort of thing that's tied to playing in this campaign and, you know, winning your games will lock these prize relics for you. But if everyone gets too greedy, then you might end up uh, pulling back on the advancement of your faction at large. Um, and then we have some new battle trait tables. Um, so if we... Should we randomise one from each of them as some examples? So, Chris, have Go you got it. that handy dice to hand? I do. So let's go through them one at a time. These are, these are all D3 tables. Um with some various bonuses available to your units as they level up. So, first of all, uh, give us a roll for character unit. Two. That is <laughs> cognant and determined. Focused on overarching strategic goals, this commander orders their soldiers towards the greater victory, rather than looking only to the most immediate threats. In your command phase, right. select one friendly unit within six inches, then select one option below. Until the start of your next command phase, each time it performs an action, it can shoot without that action failing. Or um, that unit can attempt to perform a psychic action instead of attempting to manifest one psychic power rather than any and all. Which is cool. Basically it means your units can continue to do things while doing actions. That's cool. Very nice. Uh, do you want to roll and read out the next one, Chris, from the any unit excluding vehicle and monster units? Page 90, yeah? Page 90, yeah. We got a three. Uh, so, dig in. This unit has earned a reputation for being dependable in the face of the enemy, holding on to vital tactical sites despite every attempt to drive them away. 
While this unit is within range of an objective marker, each time an enemy unit declares a charge against it, if it is not within engagement range of an enemy unit, it can hold steady or set to defend, as per the Warhammer 45 rules of the core book. So basically, so basically yeah, it gains the benefits of a defensible position, like even if there isn't one. Yep. And then Thematic. we have three new tables, which are for uh, an Imperial Vehicle Unit, a Chaos Vehicle Unit, or a Vehicle and a Monster Unit that is not Chaos or Imperium. Okay. So, uh, uh, Dice's Chris for Imperial Vehicle. Four. Five. Sterile Purge. Embracing the Metallican way of sterile purity, this vehicle purges its enemies from every crack and crater. Each time an attack is made by a model in this unit, targets a unit that is wholly within an area terrain feature, re-roll wound rolls of a one. Nice. Uh, and then your turn, Chris, for a chaos vehicle. We got a six. Frenzied spirit. This machine growls like a hunting beast, always eager to close in for the kill. Add one to the move characteristic of this model in this unit, or of models in this unit, or add and add one to the advance and charge rolls made for that unit. So if you have forge fiends and your uh, hell boots and stuff like that, that's going to be pretty sweet. Yep, very nice. And uh, then finally, give us something for a raiding vehicle or monster. Three. Fickle Raider. Choose your battles wisely and keep an eye open for a better choice to present itself. This unit is illegible to charge in a turn in which it fell back. Nice. Nice. And then um, we also have a ranged weapons enhancement table, which is interesting because this is one of the ones where I feel like you probably wouldn't really roll on it because each uh, result, and there are six of them, um, basically relate to a particular weapon type. So, for example, number one is pistols only, two is right. rapid fire, three is assault, and so on. So I think this is a table example where you probably would just pick the one that's relevant to that unit or character, or maybe just randomise yep. between the ones yeah. it has. Um, so... Uh, give us a roll, Chris, and tell us what weapon gets some fancy upgrade. Uh, Number two. Uh, capacitor loader. This weapon has been fitted with enhanced magazine capacitors to increase its lethality at all ranges. So it's for a rapid-fire weapon only. So your yeah, bolt rifles, uh, your well, not your galvanic rifles anymore. It's all changing. <laughs> uh, each time the bearer shoots this with this weapon, the target is always considered to be within half range when determining the number of attacks it makes. Fair. Each time an attack made with this weapon targets a unit within half range, add one to the attacks it rolls. That's pretty good. That's pretty good. Like that on a Stormbolter and you're laughing. Hmm. Especially if you can get some other upgrades on it. Build yeah. yourself a super gun. Uh, yep. So that's weapon enhancements. And then finally, I believe, yep, uh, sort of finally as per the extended generic crusade rules, we have a couple of new requisitions, which again is one per Grand Alliance. Um, so I think we will just quickly rattle through all of these in that case. 
So your new Imperial Requisition is over fealty. Uh, purchase this requisition after playing a battle that is part of an Abolis invasion campaign. Select one Abolis yeah. Select one Abolis invasion free blade unit in your Crusade force. That model gains one additional household keyword. Um, this must match the household keyword of at least one other model in your army, excluding the free blades. You can use this requisition for e on each free blade model in your Crusader force. So, it's funny how this is kind of specifically tied to almost an Imperial Knight force, because... Yeah, because it mentions it must yeah. match with a household already in your army, so... Yeah. So it's like, basically, it's a way of taking a free blade and giving them the household trait of yeah. your main house. I, I love the narrative of that. They've been like, adopted by them, yeah, basically, like because... They've... They they've been so awesome. You're like, yeah, yeah. Come back into our house. Come join up. You can knock about with us for yeah. a bit, kidder. I mean, it, um, but like you say, it's very specific. Yeah, it's funny how it is kind of like, especially compared to the other two. It's it's very specific. You need to have a free blade unit in a crusade force that includes other non free blade imperial knights. Yeah, it's basically one for imperial knight players. Yeah. Which again is, is nice because House Raven are prevalent in the book, but at the same time, not everyone's going to be running knights or House Raven or even knights as mm. an Imperial player. Uh, but then the. Uh, and that is one requisition point to do that. Uh, then we have the new Chaos requisition, the Chosen of Abaddon, for two requisition points. Uh, though several warlords bear Abaddon's sigil during the Abolis invasion, the Despoiler has chosen one to be first among equals. Where this warrior treads, whole armies tremble. Uh, so this is for a Obolus Invasion Heretic Astartes character <laughs> um, of heroic rank or higher. When, uh, you can use the Warlord trait requisition on that unit without spending any additional requisition points, without needing to have gained rank, and even if that model already has a warlord trait. In addition, that model gains the chosen Abaddon keyword, and your order of battle can only include one chosen of Abaddon model. So, it's a little bit of a long-worded way of saying for two requisition points, you can give one character in your order of battle two warlord traits, and he gets to have them both. And it doesn't cost any extra, does it say you get about spending yet? without spending any additional acquisition points. That's pretty big, to be fair. Yeah, well, I mean, I think that's why this one costs two uh, RP, because typically you're paying for the one that is this requisition and then kind of like the built-in one for a wall entry. Yeah, and again, the fact you don't have to have gained a rank to have done that is pretty good. And again, narrative-wise, it's really nice um, that you can only have one with the chosen of Abaddon keyword, because they don't play well together. Yeah, like he's pretty much going to be your premier Chaos Lord or equivalent. Like, he is the guy who's probably thematically in charge of your crusade. Yeah. He uh, feeds back to Abaddon and tells him what's Saquanin. And then uh, the last requisition we have is for any Aldari, Tyranids, Orcs, Necrons, and Tau Empire uh, crusade forces. So basically, yeah, non-Chaos Imperial. <laughs> and this is the Bane of Empires. 
during the Obolis invasion, many alien warlords made a name for themselves by seeking out, challenging, and defeating the mightiest commanders they could find. One requisition point purchases um, after playing the battle in the campaign. If your warlord destroyed the enemy warlord during the battle, your warlord gains five additional experience points. That's amazing. Again, you can just picture this enormous battle between the Admech and the Death Guard. The two warlords are slugging each other. All of a sudden, this um, succubus jumps out of nowhere, stabs the Death Guard, disappears. Right, that'll do. Yeah, I mean, five experience points is a lot of experience points as well, because you're also going to be gaining one for playing in that battle, probably a couple more for some agendas. Like, you probably, if you pull this off, your warlord killing theirs, they're probably going to level up. So that's, yes, I really, really like that. And that is quite a nice wide uh, selection of things. It's not as so fine-tuned as a free-blade unit in a night army. Exactly, yeah. And it can, again, it can fit into whatever the narrative is of your army in this enormous conflict. Yeah. Um, and it'll be a great story to tell when everyone's talking about the games afterwards. All of a sudden, this orc war boss came out of nowhere, slapped Typhus down, and then disappeared. <laughs> And then, making somewhat a bit of a sidestep into Death Guard territory, uh, there is a a fun new requisition available to Death Guard players. And I think it's interesting that this is in here because this is a specific requisition for a specific faction that does very specific things, and yet it's in this you know narrative supplement. Um so it'd be interesting to see if future books contain things like this, you know, I don't know, like uh, big boss names for orcs or um, some epitaph for a Necron warlord or whatever, you know. Yeah. Right. So this is the virulent gifts for Death Guard characters. And it's also a sort of a new and unique take on a requisition option that we've not seen before because it's effectively a it's an upgrade table which gains that character a special ability that special ability remains on their crusade card until such time as they use it and it's a it's a one and done ability so once you've used it it's then removed from their crusade card yeah interesting so and it also ties into the specific crusade mechanic used by the Death Guard. So um, it's one requisition point uh, for a virulent gift. And then you also expend virulent um, so you expend virulence points, which are a resource that's accumulated by completing your Death Guard agendas and crusade effects. So Death Guard players will have their pool of virulence points and this is another thing they can spend it on now. Yeah, they normally use that to manipulate their uh, uh, contagions, don't they? They do. Or you can now be using it to apply to these uh, virulent gifts on their characters. So, Purchase this requisition at any time if your Crusade Force has one or more virulence points and there are currently two or fewer models in your Crusade Force that have a virulent gift. So you can only have up to a maximum of three characters with virulent gifts at any one time. Select one Death Guard character unit from your Crusade Force that does not already have a virulent gift. 
then subtract one or two from your number of virulence points uh, because it's a d6 table and if you only pay one virulence point you randomize which gift they get if you spend two you pick which gift they get uh, in either case make a note of that against crusade card uh, of the result and add one to its crusade total when the virulent gift is lost after using during the battle subtract one from the crusade points um, uh, it is worth noting that this is outside of the Abolus campaign. It does not have to be an Abolus invasion Death Guard character. This is just available to any Death Guard character in any Crusade variant. Yeah, it mentions that it's um, it supplementing and building upon the Noxious Crusade rules found in the Codex Death Guard. So it's kind of additional to, not included. Mm -hmm. um, and they're all pretty... <laughs> They're all pretty significant and like strong abilities, especially considering they're costing you a requisition point, potentially two virulence points, and they're one use. Yeah. Um, so, do you want to give us a couple of rolls, Chris? Let's. So one, good start. So that is putrid regrowth. Oh, I liked this one. I'm glad you rolled this. Unholy vitality bubbles in every cell of this champion's body. Should the enemy lay them low, they must destroy every last gobbet of the champion's flesh. Gobbet. <laughs> Lest this fecundant gift sees Nurgle's chosen regenerate in a handful of nauseating moments. <laughs> when the bearer is destroyed, you can choose to use this gift, so importantly it's also a choice you don't have to use it next time they get killed. Uh, instead of using any other rules that are triggered when a model is destroyed. If you do, roll 1d6 at the end of the phase. For a 2+, plus, set the bearer back up on the battlefield as close as possible to where it was destroyed, not within engagement range of any models, with d3 wounds remaining. This gift is then lost, removing it from their crusade card. Nice. So come back to life. That's pretty significant. I mean, it is especially if you are playing in a campaign and you're playing in that phase three, third mission that's going to determine your final war zone score to try and determine your final strategic score to determine whether or not your alliance wins the campaign. Yeah. Or if you're just playing your friend who beat you last time and you really want to complete that secret order. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Especially if you know what future regrowth does. So like, haha, I'm back in the room, it's my turn, let's get ready. <laughs> <laughs> um, give us another one, Chris. We got five. Do you want to read this one? Sure. Uh, blighted Emanations. This champion spews clouds of choking plague fumes from the rents and orifices of all across their body. Those engulfed in this jaundiced huge smoke find themselves reeling half-blind, their flesh and armour alike peeling away in layers even as bones and servos grow weak and brittle. Sounds nice. Yummy. In your command phase, you can use this virulent gift, and again, it's a choice. If you do, until the end of the turn, the bearer gains the following ability, Blighted Emanation's Aura. While an enemy unit is within engagement range of this unit, subtract one from the strength and attacks characteristic of models in that unit to a minimum of one. The range of this ability cannot be increased by any rules, 
This running gift is then lost at the end of the turn and is removed from the bearer's crusade. So it's basically used to, um, if you're about to be charged by, I don't know, 10 gene stealers, you can use that to basically blunt them a little bit, which is cool. Yeah. And then give us one last roll that hopefully is not a one or a five. <laughs> two ones, the dice is getting thrown away. <laughs> uh, four. Classic. Ooh, pulsing bile sacks. It is a brave foe indeed who strikes a champion bearing this gift. A veritable carpet of overripe buboes festoon their flesh, and one good hard blow will burst them all. The resulting cascade of rancid juices is catastrophically infectious and typically lethal within minutes. <laughs> uh, they have not spared uh, any imagination when writing these descriptions, have I they? I love it. I'm, I'm just incredibly immature. When the bearer loses a wound, you can use this for a gift. If you do, until the end of the turn, each time the bearer would lose a wound, roll 1d6. On a 4 to 5, that wound is not lost. On a 6, that wound is not lost. And if the enemy unit that made the attack is within engagement range of the bearer, then after it has finished making its attacks, that unit suffers one mortal wound. Then it's really if it's lost. So, 4 up, feel no pain. On a 6, you bounce back a mortal wound. Lovely. That's nice when you done your last wound and uh, this dude's got one more attack left on you and then you just end up giving him a mortal wound. <laughs> and they're all very cool as I say there's a, there's a bunch more on here as well and having that sort of like trick like up your sleeve with these Death Guard characters and a couple of them across your force I mean maybe it's more for late stages crusade when you're not needing to add so many more units to your force or whatever and you've got some yeah. uh, some requisition points to burn or maybe if you just want a mission where you get an extra requisition as a reward, maybe that's where you feel like you splash out on a ruling gift. Um, I think it's just a, another cool little tool in the toolbox of the Death Guard players. And whilst I wouldn't particularly normally encourage the inclusion of special characters in a Crusade Force, there is nothing that specifies here that a ruling gift can't be taken by something like Mortarian or Typhus. Hmm. Oh, yeah, Typhus jumping back with D3 wounds. Nobody does that. <laughs> or Mortarian. <laughs> you think you've killed him. <laughs> well, that's a bit rough. <laughs> <laughs> um, so it's just interesting. I just noticed that, you know, it was a way of perhaps varying up how your Typhus might play over time. If, you know, you randomize his gift every time you give him one. And then he's just got that new little trick that changes him up until such time as he uses it and gets another gift. Yeah, and again, the campaign master, even though they're not technically technically part of the novelist invasion campaign, could step in and say, "No, you can't use any brilliant gifts until phase two because it reflects the kind of attrition of the war mm -hmm. going on and the gains that the Death Guard have made." Or vice versa, they could say, "If a Death Guard player is having a difficult time, or the invaders are having a difficult time." Each player picks one character in their army, and they each get one virulent gift for that game. Yeah, this could be a. Yeah, I would say it's just it's just another great tool in a in a box full of resources. Yeah, I think that would be a great way of using it. Perhaps rather than the bonus XP for achieving something fancy, you go here, yeah, have a virulent gift for free. <laughs> yeah, you, yeah exactly. you know, you can cash that in whenever you feel like it, basically. 
Campaign Master, I want my pulsating bile sacks, please. <laughs> Not in this store, you bloody don't. The uh, the gifts of Grandfather Nurgle are many and varied, as are the selection of new crusade rules in the Book of Rust. So, yeah, that is a whole a bunch of things we've gone over. But that's not all. <laughs> we have oh yet... God. I know, right? We have still one more section to the show that we have to review for the Book of Rust. I don't know whether or not we should maybe have done it as two shows, but I almost don't care at this point because I just want to talk about this book because I do think it is great, the amount of stuff that's in here for narrative play. <laughs> so, yeah, it's just... We're, we're going to be back in a minute. And we're going to be looking, believe it or not, at some of the new sort of army list and army construction elements within this book. So hold tight, guys. We're not going anywhere just yet. We'll be back in a second. And we're back, guys, for what I believe... Is probably the final time tonight. <laughs> um, because we are now finally making our way around to the very hotly and anticipated brand new rules for army construction from the Book of Rust. Hooray. However, we will not be discussing um, Codex Supplements, Metallica, House Raven, or the Cult of Strife. Ooh. <laughs> Because, <laughs> I mean, honestly, guys, it is it is cool. There's nice new rules in here for those factions, and it essentially boils down to a range of new warlord traits, stratagems, and relics relating specifically to those particular factions. So, you know, if you play or are interested in playing Fortress, Metallica, House Raven, or Cult of Strife, then have at it. More rules, more options, more cool things. And I'm sure there are various. Um, benefits for the match play implications of those things, but that's not what we are here to talk about tonight ourselves. Yeah, I I can't imagine many people are listening to this right now and thinking, oh, I don't know what those things do, uh, and I have no way of finding they out. Two, they get to two hours and 13 minutes and they're thinking, when are they going to get to the competitive stuff? Yeah, no. <laughs> now, as a, as a cult Metallica player for a couple of years now, I'm just really, really glad to see that they've got a book and I'm just, like, ecstatic that they've got supplements and wallet traits and stuff, so I will take that and be humbly, quietly happy about it. Uh, yeah, I think uh, I think it shines, a, you know, a hopeful light for the future for other factions where, you know, we might see things for some of the more sidelined um, sub-factions, so things like, you know, I don't know, Craft World, Diane, and... Um, snake bites clans. Yes. Or maybe not snake bites because you kind of already have them. But well, I guess like yeah. a full supplement for it. But yeah. Well, I um, mean, if the uh, if the next book comes out similar times to the uh, the new orc stuff, maybe maybe there will be a supplement snake bites in there. Who knows? I mean, it might be. This is where we see the. <laughs> I mean. This might be the sort of stuff where we see the um, resurgence of things like the Crimson Slaughter or Corn Demonkin. Yeah. Um, possibly even so far as to include things like 
um, second foundings, so famous chapters uh, of like the Dark Angels. You know, maybe there's a supplement for Angels of Redemption at some point. Maybe even like um, more Warzone books like Armageddon or Badab or something like that. That'd be great. Yeah, get something for the um, like the Armageddon Chem, not Chem Dogs, was it? Is that what they were called? Oh, the Chem Sulfur Dogs, something like that. Yeah, like the Sulfur Dogs or whatever. Yeah, stuff like that. Yeah. Sort of real niche factions. Um, but that said, to that end, I did want to shout out two very specific elements from these mini codex supplements, and that is the um, Knight of the Cog stratagem from uh, the Forge World Metallica supplement and the Blessed by Metallica House Raven Warlord trait, because they set a very interesting precedent for these future sub-sub-factions, almost. So, Knight of the Cog for 1 CP is use a stratagem before the battle when you are mustering your army. Select one House Raven unit from your army. That unit gains the Canticles of the Omnissiah ability and is considered to have the Adaptus Mechanicus keyword for the purposes of this ability. Um, and the inclusion of this unit in your army does not prevent Adaptus Mechanicus units from your army from using any rules that require every model in your army to have the Mechanicus keyword. So, a long-winded way of basically being able to take a... I say a single, but I guess one per CP that you're willing to spend. Imperial Knight in your Fordral Metallica army and it remain a Metallica um, like mono faction and that knight even gains like the canticles of the Omnissiah like bringing in that Mechanicum special rule to it. Which is, which is amazing. Um, obviously we don't know what the new canticle rule is going to be like in the new book but even with the current um, current editions canticles that can be enormous for a knight to have definitely. Yeah, Shroud Psalm. Shroud Psalm for days. And then on the flip side of that, we have the House Raven Codex Supplement includes a Warlord trait called Blessed by Metallica, where you add two to this Warlord's wounds characteristic, and this Warlord can be repaired by Metallica Tech Priest units as if they were a Metallica vehicle model. So, again, it's interesting to see that this one supplement has a rule that's specifically tied to not only another like codex, but a sub-faction within it. It's not even just like it's any tech priest. It has to be a Metallica tech priest. It's it's very specific, but very narrative. Yeah, it's yeah, like... It's- it's almost encouraging knight players to take a Metallica detachment or vice versa, a Metallica detachment to take a knight detachment. Yeah. it's. I was trying to imagine what other examples we might see of this in the future. I mean, the only pre-existing thing that feels slightly like this is the Dark Angel stratagem, the Lion and the Wolf, where yes. if you're... If your space force contains yeah, Space Wolves and Dark Angels, you get to use this stratagem for some bonus. But other than that, I can't think of any other previous examples, but it feels like this is opening the doors for things like um, key moments in law where forces are known to fight alongside each other. Like, there could be something that's 
Mark of the Templar, and if you've got um, Armageddon Steel Legion, you could get a, a stratagem or a relic or something that represents the fact you're fighting alongside the Black Templars at Hell's Reach. Yeah. You know, and it could be that specific, like, this Steel Legion um, infantry unit gains the benefits of um, the, like, chaplain blessings from a Black Templar's chaplain. You know, or something like that. Yeah, it'd be nice to see if anything else comes of this. Uh, I just thought it was a very interesting thing we've not seen before, like tying cross codex factions to some narrative link and representing that in a rules benefit. Yeah. Um, trying to think of other examples, but I'm, I'm sure there must be plenty of like famous battles where multiple forces and over fighting alongside each other. And, you know, that doesn't yeah, like, mean I'm expecting like, a stratagem for Blood Angels to be all buddy-buddy with Necrons. <laughs> but... Like um, like Armageddon, so Black Templars and Steel Legion, Astro Militarum working together, that would be, oh, I'd be all over that. That sounds like a great idea. <laughs> I don't know, I quite like the um the idea of the Ro-Bro-Fist stratagem for uh, Necrons and, and uh, <laughs> Blood Angels. That sounds, uh, sounds I... pretty good. I disagree. <laughs> um, so yeah, so that's that's actually everything we're going to talk about of the standalone codex supplements. Um, because the main thing that we're going to be talking about is this new army construction concept that is the Armies of Renown. Yes. And this is basically, fingers crossed, the latest attempt at non-broken formations <laughs> in 40k. Yes. Uh, um, I mean, so they're pretty cool. Are we are we going to uh, kind of go through them all, or just uh, yeah? Ass- I mean, assume I people know. Well, I mean, yeah. This is probably the one thing that has been covered um, on other shows, but I wanted to sort of really highlight it because it is a something new. And while it does have various matched play implications, I think it also has a lot of narrative play implications. Um, and I think perhaps that is the the hallmark of maybe something that actually works yeah. as, as a pseudo formation yeah. and not a, a horribly broken system yeah. of extra rules. I, I really like it because it is, like you say, it's very narrative and it's um, it's basically like, you can build a narrative army that works in a match play game uh, and you get some bonuses for doing this very narrative thing, but you also get quite significant disadvantages, um, which yeah. is what basically what all of the previous attempts at this have lacked, which, which yes. turned them into basically auto takes for tournaments or whatever. So um, the two... Well, so there's three armies of renown included in this supplement, which is um, one for three blade, three blade lancers, so whole armies of um, imperial knight, three blades all joined together. Um, Mechanicus defense cohort, which is basically your army of battle robots, um, and the terminus est assault force, which is meant to be representative of Typhus's personal plague company and how he likes to wage war and he's doing so in the Charidon sector. Yeah. So um so I think one of the ones that's 
the two we're sort of going to talk about are the Mechanicus Defense Cohort and the Terminus S Assault Force. And yeah. I think the Defense Cohort is probably the best all-round example of how it is both thematic and comes with a whole bunch of really beneficial rules, but also a noticeable and significant drawback. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So the way that basically all these armies of renown function is that they involve some sort of army list construction restriction. And in exchange for that, all the units that are in your army gain a keyword that then has associated special rules and some bonus war trace relics and stratagems that they can employ. So, the Mechanicus Defense Cohort, um, its restrictions are as such. All units in your army must be Adeptus Mechanicus, but can be drawn, uh, sorry, they must all be Mechanicus, Adeptus Mechanicus and drawn from the same Forge World. However, this is available to any Forge World. This isn't specifically a Metallican yeah. one. Whereas, like, Terminus S, the Salt Force, has to specifically be the, Har- uh, the Harbingers, because that is Typhus's um, Death, uh, Death Guard company. Yep. But also, your army cannot include any Skatari units. That's the big one. Yeah, because basically you're cutting out like 70% yeah. of the Mechanicus range. Like, like almost all of it. <laughs> yeah, because it means basically no infantry units. Yep. It's basically yep. no vehicle units over the, nope. the technicality of the castle and robots. Yeah. Um, so you're not getting your Doomwalkers, your Striders, your um, Rangers any of it you're not getting no yeah. flyers no flappy men no robo doggos none of that yeah Robo-dogos. none of your battle chickens nope it almost harpers back to the old age of when adamek and skitari were separate books yes uh yeah, that was a, that was an interesting decision wasn't it it really really <laughs> was it's like when they announced the um the skitari book for must have been eighth edition where everyone went yep yeah. Cool, makes sense. Yeah, when they're all in the so same. Yeah, this is an interesting yep. kind of narrative throwback to that, for whatever reason it may be for the uh, for the supplement. Yeah, and basically it leaves you with what are more or less the cybernetica units in forty k. So that's basically you know your cataphron breaches, destroyers, servitors, and castle and robots. Yeah, and then your associated um, tech priest. Yeah, characters. Um. And that's basically the concept of what this is. It's it's pretty much Adeptus Cybernetica rather than Mechanicus. Yeah. It does so, allow you to take the Electro Priest as well. Yeah. But uh, they don't get any extra bonuses, so... No, whatever. so by cutting out the Skatari, you know, like, honestly, that is hugely impactful to the way the uh-huh. army is going to be able to function, and it's going to make it in all honesty, quite one-dimensional in how it functions on the battlefield, especially when you then add these new special rules and benefits it gets as they pay off for that sacrifice. So basically, your Cataphron Breaches, Destroyers, 
servitors and castle and robots gain these following benefits. Um, they you, say, you say benefits. One of them is not a benefit. Yeah. So uh, this. So for, yeah. So to be fair, the first thing is actually another drawback. Where this unit never gains a forgeable dogma, but its inclusion in the attachment does not prevent it from uh, preventing other units from getting a dogma. So you. Um, your electro priests and your tech priests would still maintain their, you know, forgeable yes. Metallica rule or equipment, but the robots themselves lose theirs because instead they gain the extremist sentinel keyword. Each time a ranged attack is allocated to a model in this unit, if this unit is either wholly within its controller's deployment zone or if every model in this unit is within range of an objective market, subtract one from the damage characteristic of that attack to a minimum of one. Very important, since these are all very multi-wound models. Yes, very tasty. Each time a unit declares a charge against this unit, if it is not within engagement range of any enemy units, it can either hold steady or set to defend. And that is, um, that's just any time. That doesn't have to be if it's in the deployment zone or on an objective. Yeah. So and then... That's the, uh, that's the bonus you get from being in defensible terrain normally. Yes, so if you're in the open, you can gain the benefit of um, defensible terrain, even though there's nothing there. And um, basically, you get plus one to those benefits. So if you do fire Overwatch, you're hitting on fives. And if you do fight in combat as a result of that charge, um, you get plus one to hit for the turn. Hey, uh, Castle and Robots Overwatching on fives, that's pretty tasty. Uh, yeah, and at minus one damage if they're uh, basically holding ground on an objective board. Deployment zone. Yeah. Oof. Um, and that's kind of it in the sense of the special rules you gain. Now, obviously, there are also some relics and stratagems available, and the stratagems are significant. But, like, you're cutting out Skitari, you're cutting out your Forge World Dogma, and the upside is you get minus one damage and the ability to overwatch on fives and plus one to hit in combat. Yeah. Like, it, it is quite a. A balancing act going on there. It's not just strictly powerful for the sake of it. Yeah, yeah, I really like it. It's it. It doesn't feel like it's um. There, you like it doesn't feel like a no brainer choice. It's a uh, yeah. You you really got to think about putting that kind of list together. Even if your even if your admec list is mostly those things, cutting out a few units of Skitari is quite significant. And there's a, a fancy, um, like, Volkite relic weapon that's, you know, deadlier than its regular counterpart. There's a, a Warlord trait to give one of these units objective secured. Um, mm. And then the stratagems. There's one that basically um, lets you add one to the hit roll if you're shooting from your deployment zone at a target unit that is in the opponent's deployment zone. <laughs> yeah. Um, there's one where you can increase the cover benefit to a piece of terrain in your deployment zone. Um, so it's either plus one save. It gains light cover if it didn't have it, and if it already had light cover, it's plus two to the saving throw. Yeah. Um, Brad Bombardment, which is basically an orbital bombardment effect, um, where you, you know, um, select a point on the battlefield, place a marker. At the start of your next command phase, roll on d6 for each unit with six inches of it. Uh, subtracted one as a character on a four to five is d3 mortal wounds on a six plus is d3 mortal wounds and subtract one from the toughness characteristic. Nice. Uh, until the end of the 
uh, end of the turn. Um, and there is a stratagem which um, is it one that lets you fire into combat? It's uh, until the end of the phase, models in the unit have the big guns never tire roll in the same manner as if they were a vehicle and they do not suffer the minus one to hit. So yeah, so basically for there's a stratagem that allows your uh, destroyers or castle robots to fire into combat at no penalty. Yeah. Oof. So yeah, it's it's really doubling down on the effectiveness of those very limited selection of units. Yeah. I think it's it's nice because again it encourages a theme which is what the book's all about. But it's one of those where like you say, you weigh up the cons and you weigh up the pros and there's the different stratagems to try out. It encourages you to take it for a spin a few times. Like you say, there's no dead sir, I'm gonna play these units with this um mech defense cohort, I'm gonna play this stratagem every turn. It really requires you to like fine tune it as a player and find how it fits your game style. And against some armies it'll probably do well and against some it might struggle. I have to admit, I do quite fancy giving it a go sometime. Yeah. Just this wall of servitors with their great big arm-mounted cannons blasting away in a defensive yeah. manner. Like, I'd, I'd love to be that mad lad who goes to a tournament with an army that deliberately ignored 75% of the unit choices in the codex. Yeah. <laughs> Immediately met with eye rolls and, what are you playing that for? <laughs> Uh, I think it'll be interesting to see how it is when the new book comes out. It's definitely going to be something I'll look at. Yeah. Yeah, and I think it's nice how, as an alternate army build for Mechanicum, it's something that probably a lot of people probably could just try with their collections anyway. Like you say, just like, oh, okay, what does an army list look like if I just take my Castellans and my Cataphons? Well, the only thing can you do that that is now a, you know, like a set of rules to encourage that army list you know if it's a thing you want to try yeah yeah and i think this is an interesting way of building an army that like treads a line between theme and uniqueness it's very unique but it also has this sort of like it's the cybernetica aspect that is the theme but it's more like a universal faction theme whereas this next one, the Terminist Est Assault Force, is very much tied to the special character of Typhus and his play company and the way he wages war. So I think, like, the Defense Cohort and the uh, the Freelance Blade are more alternate ways of approaching that army's codex, whereas the Terminus Est Assault Force is very much a historic kind of, like, um, narrative force. It is Typhus's play company. Yeah, yeah. It's very linear. There's very much only kind of like one way to play it and run it, which a lot of people will get behind because Typhus is a very popular character and is a he's always been a solid choice for a Death Guard army and his models absolutely wicked. Yeah, it it feels like um it's an extension of the character. Like the entire army is a special character. For instance, your army cannot include Mortarion. Yep, makes sense. Yep. If your army includes Typhus, it, he must be the Warlord. Yep. So, yep. I, I do like it. Typhus is actually optional if you just wanted to be part of, you know, yeah. a section of his wider force. But if he is present, no one's telling him what to do. He's the head man. Yeah, he's not, not doing everything, is he? 
He's sending some people off without him. Um, and then whilst that is kind of like tied to the theme of his play company, the real drawback in terms of the army list construction for real world play on the tabletop is your army cannot include any units with the vehicle keyword. Yeah. So again, when you think about it, that's cutting out a good 50% of that codex, really. It's it's cutting out a lot, and it's also cutting out all of the heavy firepower. Yes. Yeah, that's, yeah. that's all your plague drones and your plague first crawlers. Yeah, no demon engines, no and, land raiders, yeah, not even and, rhinos. It's, it's, it's all the firepower and all of the mobility. <laughs> yeah, in an army that is not famous for its mobility yeah. anyway. It's, it's so... But it isn't... Here's a nice throwback to the Horus Heresy days of the Death Guard slowly moving yeah. forward in a kind of wall of bodies and attrition and wall-to-wall stinky toughness five monsters running. Yeah, out. it is kind of um, it's it's kind of doubling down on Death Guard, isn't it? Um, but the upshot that you get is that um, you gain the benefit of the Outbreak Assault rule, so. When placing Terminus Est Assault Force units into strategic reserves, um, you don't use the standard table for CP expenditure for that. You use the one presented here, which although I haven't checked against it exactly, I'm assuming it's either a larger allowance of power level or a slightly reduced CP cost to put those things in the strategic reserve. But importantly, if a Terminus Est Assault Force Bubonic Astartes unit is placed in strategic reserve, then in the reinforcement step of your movement phase, instead of arriving um, from strategic reserve as described in the core rulebook, you instead uh, can set up that unit anywhere on the battlefield that is more than nine inches from enemy units. So rather than having to walk on table edges, you can just deep strike your playgrounds. Yeah. Not having to wait till X turn to be able to put them where you'd ideally like to. Yeah, yeah I think that's a, I think that's a well justified payoff for the restrictions. Yeah. No vehicles, no transports, reduced mobility, but the infantry you yeah. are taking, all of that power armored infantry is capable of deep yeah. striking. Yeah, it's cool. Here, here come all my Blight Lord Terminators at T5 with three wounds, four of them bones, go and get them. Here come my Plague Marines. Here come my Possessed yeah. Plague Marines. Yes. You know, possessed is the yeah. unit I was thinking of with that when I first saw it. I was like, hmm, okay. So you can drop your Possessed right in for a charge. Like there's um, a, a bunch of things. It also includes all your characters. Oh so, yeah. Like your um, your noxious bite bringers. Oh, what's your... what's the range on the uh, on the disgusting flame man? I can't remember his name. I, will, Real... oh, I believe oh, yeah. I believe it's twelve inch because it's a nine finishing codex. Uh, yeah, I think he's been up to twelve. Because dropping him in to use his super flamer of death from uh, from deep strike would be quite tasty. We call him the Mayor Man. In my <laughs> uh, there was a game where my brother played him against the Necron player, and he shot him into a squad of three Necron destroyers. And he rolled for his damage, he rolled for all that, and uh, he killed them all in one volley. And the, the Necron player was like, "He does what? Sorry? <laughs> yeah, are you sure? I'm not. I'm not being funny. Can we just have a look at his book? <laughs> Honestly, it was unbelievable. Yeah, him dropping down with no restrictions from strategic reserves." You're uh, you're not gonna let it slip for more than one turn, that's for sure. Mm-hmm. No. And then all that sort of like that very unique battlefield approach is then supplemented by the fact that the Terminus S assault force comes with 
four unique stratagems, which includes a, like um, a re-racking of a unit of poxwalkers. Um, there's a, like a du- practically a double move stratagem for poxwalkers because they're a big deal in you know Typus's approach yes. to uh, warfare. There's also a selection of seven you know, new relics to pick from, and even a brand new psychic discipline that's available exclusively to these Terminus Estus Hulk Force Psychers. So, and they are, as I'm sure you'll have heard on some uh, some other match play focused reviews, apparently it's damn good. <laughs> um, so, well, I think the fact that more psychic powers is always good because it's more options, right? Yeah, I mean, an entire additional psychic discipline seven additional relics, four new stratagems, and a fundamental change on how the army deploys on the battlefield brings basically almost a second entirely different way to play with Codex Death Guard. Yeah. Using this and the Warlord right is pretty good as well, the Harbinger of Death. Go on. Uh, so it's an aura ability. While an enemy model with a leadership characteristic of seven or less is within three inches of this warlord, that model's unit cannot make use of the objective secured or any similar abilities, and it cannot perform any actions. In addition, while one or more unit enemy models are in range of this aura, add one to the warlord's attack characteristic. So you can shut down units really, really easily, yeah. especially with um, modifiers to leadership in some of the missions we've got in this book. Yeah, that could be tasty. So, yeah, I mean, I think it goes without saying that you know, if you enjoy narrative play, and if in particular you are either a four-drilled Metallica or a Death Guard player, I would definitely advise picking up this book. <laughs> <laughs> but even beyond that, I think there's a ton of cool stuff in here for anyone who's looking to run or be involved in um, you know, a crusade campaign. Um, I think outside of the Pariah Nexus, sorry, outside of the Beyond the Veil mission pack and the Plague Purge mission pack, which is probably going to be the subject of the next episode, um, I think this is probably the other premium way to run a Crusade campaign at this moment in time in 9th edition. So if if you had to buy, if you had to buy one book to run a, a, a Crusade campaign with, it, would it be this one? Um, for a campaign for a dedicated um, like window of time, I would say this. If you are looking for a more open-ended system to run like a ladder campaign where it just runs indefinitely, yeah, I'd perhaps maybe look at one of the mission packs. Okay, but if you wanted this to be a um, like a club event that's going to run for three months or six weeks or whatever, and you really want to feel like you're playing a larger narrative more so than just a collection of linked crusade games um i think this is where you want to be cool yeah i'd echo that um i think the i think it's especially user-friendly for new people who are new to 40k crusades or narrative campaigns because again the open-ended bare bones of it is really really good it's three phases with three sets of unique rules and war zones and bits like that. Uh, so you can have three games that just run into a short kind of one day or event campaign, or you can stretch out into weeks or months. 
uh, and the, the content's really, really good, not just for Metallica or Death Guard players, but for a lot of people out there as well who want to try Crusade. Uh, I'm certainly going to try and get the Crusade group at my FLGS into this, because we went a great Crusade before uh, lockdown just gone, uh, and I really think they're going to miss a trick if they don't have this. Yeah, I think this really has been the... This is the first step in the ninth edition iteration of like the Vigilus campaign. This is the Charadon campaign. And I think it's just what Vigilus did for 8th edition. I think this is doing for ninth, And if anything, I think more so because now we've got that consideration of Crusade as an established format for the game. And this can just really lean into it. Yeah, I think Vigilus certainly in, immediately when it was released had that big impact because it was Abaddon coming back and it was kind of that uh, fun away through the Sycadrix Maledictum. It probably had a little bit more of an impact on the narrative overall for Warhammer 40,000. But I think this, for a compact package to play a campaign, uh, and the narrative itself in it is very, very good. Um, if you like reading about nerdy stuff like I do. Uh, yeah, I think it uh, it will be a great way for people to ease into a small or large campaign once we can game again. Well, I imagine that when we get Act 2, there's a, probably a good chance that there'll be a continuation of the campaign system in there. Probably like uh, either a self-contained phases 1 through 3 for a second campaign system or a continuation as a pseudo phases 4, 5 and 6. So I think that... yeah, either way, I'm excited to see how the story continues, but um, I'm also just as if not more excited for the campaign content that follows on from it because if they can expand on what they've done in here, it only gives you the option to play smaller games from book one, uh, but then maybe an expanded series of games led on from book two. And as a side note, if you discount the Death Guard, I think it's incredibly impressive that this is a entire campaign supplement rule system with multiple like codexes and armies of renown and crusade rules that's been added to the game and none of it touches on or includes space marines <laughs> hooray yeah no you are absolutely 100 they're mentioned in the narrative but they're they're not mentioned at all within the campaign supplements or the game mechanics which is I won't say it first, but it might be. Oh yeah, it's it's nice to see them take a bit of a backseat once in a while. Yeah, I mean, don't get me wrong, I imagine they're going to be exploding onto the scene in book two, and if it turns out that the freaking Ultramarines just turn up to save the day, <laughs> I, I'm go- I, I, I don't know what I'm going to do. I'm just going to, I'm going to be let down as well. No, I'm, I'm, I'm telling you now, it's going to be the Beast Snaggers coming to save the day. Yeah. You'll you'll hear the collective mechanical eye rolls of every tech priest on Metallica going, oh, for God's sake. <laughs> you were doing fine. Don't bother. So, yeah. Um, that is Act 1 in the Book of Rust. Next episode, we'll probably be taking a look at Plague Purge and possibly Dracarian Crusade. And no doubt in the near future, we'll probably start getting our first hints of what Act 2 is going to be. And if it's going to be as good as this, and to be honest, from what I recall, I think Vigilus Ablaze was better than Defiant. So if book two of this builds on and improves even more so than book one, then that's just going to be amazing. Nothing but good times to look forward to. It's true. Uh, in um in the wake of hopeful easing of measures in 
England specifically, where, where I think all of us are. Uh, I'm going to try and draw up a mini campaign series. So on May 16th or 17th, when we're allowed people inside our houses again, oh. um, as dictated by government mandates, praise Boris. Uh, the plan is for my brother to come around with this death guard, and we might want to run a mini uh, Warzone Caradon campaign just as a day session uh, and take it from there just to try the phases out. So I'll write something up and post it in the Narrative Wargamer group, and if you're interested, be sure to tag along. And I'm sure that will give you plenty of uh, stuff to talk about the next time you're at one, and we actually have a games played section for the first time. Hooray! <laughs> Cannot wait. Oof. I've got so many games to play, it's not even funny. Well, thank you very much, guys, for joining me, and thank you guys for listening, because at this point now, I'm pretty sure we're over the three-hour mark. <laughs> And I think, you know, the Book of Rust has become very much the the largest podcast episode to date. And I can only expect similar things from Book 2. And we might have to consider breaking that down into two episodes, maybe. And in either case, I've got a mammoth show of an edit to go through now. So uh, I think we will bring it to a close there, guys. Yeah, if it wasn't as good as we're saying, we wouldn't talk about it for three hours. It's uh, I think there's some test of quality there. Definitely, and I think it's a testament to just really how much there is in this book and how much there is to really get any value for money out of it if it is something that is going to add to your experience of the game. And I, I honestly think there's probably something in there for most people. Agreed. Yeah. Like even from a player element, uh, if a campaign master gets the book and then sets up a game sister, a game campaign with ten other people, everyone in that campaign is going to enjoy something from this book that takes place in the game. Yeah. So yes, uh, I say thank you to everyone for listening and sticking in there for three hours of very crunchy rules content. <laughs> Hopefully, we will have a paint station garrison in the next episode. And if you want something a bit lighter and um, more just casual hobby, then why not go check out the first of our casual conversations bonus episodes now available to our patrons over on the patron. So, um, yeah, go check that out, guys, if you're interested. Uh, We had fun uh, chatting about it, and uh, I'm looking forward to doing more of them in the future for our patrons. Yeah. So um, that's all good. And, uh, yeah. I've, I'm sure we'll have a, a little backlog of community uh, shout outs for the next time but until then this has been a Narrative Wargamer podcast helping you to discover many many more ways to play 40k 